The book that we're featuring this evening is Absolute Madness, a true story of a serial killer, race, and a city divided, with my special guest, journalist and author, Catherine, Catherine Pellinera. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Catherine Pellinera. Hi. Good evening, Dan. This is Catherine Pellinero. It's very, very nice to be speaking with you. Let's talk about how you came to be the author of Absolute Madness. What, how did you come to be in a position? Why did you want to write this book? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I, my first true crime book was Kitty Genovese, which was published in 2014. And in May of 2014, I was on my way to Buffalo, New York, which also happens to be my hometown, to do some publicity appearances for Kitty Genovese. And, of course, the question was coming up, well, what's your next book going to be? And I actually had no plans for another book. I had spent uh, seven years altogether on the Kitty Genovese story. And, you know, another delving into another book was sort of, in a way, the last thing on my mind. Uh, but I, as I was on my way, I'm... Uh, I was talking to my sister on the phone, one of my sisters, and uh, she was telling me, you know, you should think about writing the story of the 22 caliber killer. And I told her, you know, I, I don't really remember that. I mean, it, because it had happened in our hometown, as it, the killings had started in Buffalo in 1980. And, you know, I was a kid at the time, and I rem all I really remembered was the headlines. I really didn't know anything about the story. I remember the headlines about the 22 caliber killer and something about two cab drivers being murdered and having their hearts cut out. But, you know, I told her, I just don't remember anything about it. She said, well, you know, while you're there, look into it. It's a really, really heartbreaking and compelling story. It's, it's never been told. And, you know, I really think you should look into it. So while I was there, I spoke to a friend of mine in the Erie County District Attorney's Office. And, uh, you know, he did some checking for me. And he said, he came back and he said, well, you know, if you do decide to write about this case, uh, we have all the original files. We have, uh, you know, 22 wow. boxes of the original files, and they're, you know, you're welcome to them. Now, it turned out there was, I mean, more than 22 boxes. Uh, yeah. but, so, that, I mean, that's certainly a great offer for a, for a true crime author. And also, my father, uh, Salvatore Pellinero, was a Buffalo police officer for 34 years. Uh -huh. And uh, he passed away in, in 2005, unfortunately. But, um, of course, he knew uh, many, if not all, of the Buffalo police officers and some of the state police who had worked on the case. So my first thought was, well, maybe I'll, you know, I'll look into it because it will, you know, kind of maybe an excuse to spend a little time in the hometown. I thought maybe I'll write an article about it or something. But the more I started looking into the case, uh, I went from a feeling of, well, this might be interesting to, oh, my God, I've got to tell the story. Because it was yeah. so different than anything I had heard. Now, even keep in mind, I only, I'd only re remember the headlines, but I did go back and look up some of the archival news footage. And it was, um, the storyline was always, uh, these were racially motivated attacks. It was this white serial killer. Nobody knows why he did this, but he went around and he started killing black men at random. So... Now, when I write, my approach to nonfiction, and particularly to true crime, is I try to be as absolutely thorough as possible. I started out as a playwright. My background is as, uh, in the theater, where the focus is completely on character. And I approach right. even real people the same way. In other words, I try to learn as much as I possibly can about them. So I started looking, you know, I look into the case and the case files, 
And I start digging into the background of Joseph Christopher, whose name I didn't even know when I started uh, working on this case. So I really, uh, I really had no horse in the race as far as, um, you know, I thought the story should be one thing or the other. I mean, I really, you know, really had no vested interest in it, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, whatever right. the story was, that's what I was going to write. So as I start looking into it, this is a case where it had always been advertised as this racist serial killer who went on a rampage and nobody seemed to know why. But then it became very obvious that there was something, there was something that wasn't right about that because I'm looking at the police reports, you know, the actual interviews that were done at the time when Christopher became a suspect, and every single one, I mean, they interviewed um, former coworkers of his and friends and, and many friends who were, who were black, who were African-American, and they all said the same thing. You know, no, you've got, they told the police, you've got the, you're looking at the wrong guy. Joe is my friend. He's never, you know, never a racist remark from him. You know, I've had, I have dinner with him. You know, we socialize together. So I thought, well, this is odd. And, um, and just to back up a little bit, Joseph Christopher was 25 years old and had no criminal record, you know, before, of course, he, was, uh, he came to light as a suspect in these crimes. So it was, uh, he was completely under the radar of the police. And when he did become a suspect, it became as a shock to everybody who knew him. I mean, there wasn't even anybody who could come forward and say, well, yeah, you know, sometimes he would be violent. You know, there was really nothing like that. So the more I learned about that, you know, the more intrigued I became to find out, well, wait a minute, well, what happened? I mean, who wakes up at the age of 25 and decides to go on a racist killing spree? That just, you know, that just didn't sound right. You know, there has to be more to it. And I guess at the beginning, I sort of half expected that I'll, I'll dig into his background more and I'm going to find out that uh, maybe very few people knew it, but he was in some neo-Nazi group or something like that. But there was nothing like that. And I covered, I mean, I really covered my bases. I spoke to his third grade teacher. I spoke to guys who were in Cub Scouts with him. I spoke to high school friends, to employers, to you know, girl, former girlfriend, and um, and eventually to his, you know, closer family members. And there was just nothing. And, of course, the more I find, the more I discover that, you know, the question will be, becomes, well, what did, did happen then? Do you talk about mm-hmm. the prosecution, and they really like their psychiatric uh, witness, Dr. Barton. How did Barton portray the other two murders, the cabbie murders that, again, you say that were never proven. What was his approach in terms of, for the prosecution, what was his tone and approach? Okay. Well, it's important to note that Christopher was, uh, Dr. Barton was the, the prosecution psychiatrist for the second trial. Christopher was convicted of the three twenty-two caliber shootings in 1980, uh, 1981, but that conviction was later overturned by an appeals court uh, that, that decided that his attorney should have been able to introduce more evidence of his, you know, psychiatric condition. Uh, Christopher was retried on the, the 22 caliber shootings in 1985, and that's when the psychiatrist named Dr. Russell Barton was brought on board. And he was known as a psychiatrist who was very friendly to the prosecution, um, so much so that the district attorney in Rochester actually had him on retainer. Um, and what, how this all came about was Barton did a videotaped 
uh, interview with Joseph Christopher, in which Christopher and remember we're we're skipping ahead several you know several years here. Um, sure. After you know Christopher had been in prison and and he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals you know for for years in between. Um, he conducts an interview with Christopher where Christopher is admitting to all kinds of things. Now, including the cab driver killings. Now, what Christopher tells Dr. Barton is wrong. You know, his confession to the cab driver killings is, is absolutely wrong. Um, but unfortunately, this is used in court against him, even though he's not on trial for these crimes. The prosecutor seizes on that and, um, you know, sort of uses it in his in his argument that if, because this time around they were trying to use a um, – um, they had advanced a psychiatric defense for Christopher. And the prosecutor advances that theory that, well, but look how vicious he is. You know, he he killed these cab drivers and cut their hearts out, uh, which is yeah. really, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's grossly unfair. I mean, it wasn't appropriate at the time because Christopher hadn't even been charged with these. But particularly if you look at the evidence, it's, it's abundantly clear that Joseph Christopher had nothing to do with those cab driver murders. Uh, you know, by the by that time, 1985, uh, his mental illness, his mental state had degenerated to the to the point where he would have confessed to the Lindbergh kip, kidnapping, essentially. Uh, sure. You know, really too bad. And this is actually where where the title of the book came from is Absolute Madness, because what I discovered when I started really looking into the into the case, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it just didn't make sense that Joseph Christopher. Uh, you know, had committed these crimes. And in fact, when it was, um, there was an article in the newspaper of, before my book came out, you know, talking about how I was writing the story, I had a couple of Joseph Christopher's black friends seek me out to tell me Joseph, Joe was not a racist. Joe was a good guy. I don't know what happened to him, but, right. you know, he wasn't. And what it was in a nutshell is very unfortunately, Joseph Christopher developed paranoid schizophrenia. And, that was really the cause of his, of, you know, the crime spree that he went on, the, the changes in his behavior. And what makes this doubly heartbreaking is that Joe realized at some point that his mind, there was something wrong. And he, you know, he tried to talk to, you know, his former girlfriend and then his best friend, you know, Peter, um, but really couldn't even explain to them what was happening. Well, just days before the first shooting, which was the murder of Glenn Dunn, uh, Joseph Christopher went to the Buffalo Psychiatric Hospital and asked to be admitted. He actually sought help. He didn't know, obviously he had no background in psychiatry. He didn't know what was wrong with him, but he knew something was wrong, and he asked to be admitted to the psychiatric hospital, and he was turned away. Um, this lasted about 30 minutes, and they suggested that he get counseling. And that that was especially jarring for me. I mean, the whole story is heartbreaking. Sure. But what's really disturbing is that we're still, we still hear about incidences like that, where someone who uh, who needs mental health help, you know, they realize at some level that, that you know something wrong and they they need help. They seek the help and they don't get it. They're turned away, and then often with really tragic consequences. So that was something that really that really gripped me when it came to this story. Because if you look at his history, uh, if you look at Joe's history up until he became ill when he was about 24, 25, this was a good guy. 
and um, his his mind betrayed him. I mean, this is someone who became profoundly mentally ill uh, through no fault of his own, and um, the 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 consequences were beyond tragic. And what's wrong with Buffalo? <laughs> Less than a month after prosecutors say 18-year-old Peyton Gendron shot 13 people at a Topps market in Buffalo, Governor Kathy Hochul was announcing new gun control legislation, including raising the minimum age for semi-automatic weapon purchases from 18 to 21 years old. Her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo, signed legislation ending the practice of charging 16- and 17-year-old suspects as adults. Among the arguments for such changes is the maturity of the human brain. B.J. Casey, professor of neuroscience and behavior at Barnard College, Columbia University, says research shows brain development continues well into a person's 20s. What we know from the developmental and brain sciences is that there's continued development of the brain and brain networks, especially those that are involved in uh, self-regulation and self-control that extend beyond 18 years um, and well into the 20s. Um, our own work shows that 18 to 21-year-olds look more similar to uh, young teens when they're in emotionally charged situations with regard to their cognitive abilities and the pattern of brain activity that we see. And you would really be hard-pressed to tell the difference between an individual that was 17 versus an individual that was 19 or, say, even 20 in that pattern of brain activity and behavior. The U.S. Supreme Court took this into account in 2005, ruling in the Roper versus Simmons case that it is unconstitutional to impose the death penalty for a crime committed by someone under the age of 18. Some states also prevent younger defendants from facing life sentences without parole. Alexandra Harrington is an associate professor and the director of the Criminal Justice Advocacy Clinic at the University at Buffalo School of Law. Some states have actually, based on the brain science and this understanding that the regions of our brain that, that control higher order decision making and functioning aren't, aren't yet developed, some states have actually extended that logic and have prohibited these kind of sentences, for example, life without parole on people who are under 21. So there is now some um, development in this law and different ages that are being set in different jurisdictions in recognition of what we now better understand based on the science. New York State has no death penalty and only allows life without parole for juveniles in cases of terrorism. The pending state case against Gendron will be the first in New York State to apply the terrorism statute. The death penalty is a possibility in the pending federal case. Violent crimes involving suspects 18 or younger lead critics to question whether the criminal justice system has become too lenient. Harrington suggests while the public might seek further reforms, it needs to be careful not to overcorrect in a wrong direction. Because I do think it is absolutely the right thing to recognize that children are different, that their brains are still developing, and that they should not be punished in the same way as adults. We still have the ability within the law, if there is a um, particularly egregious crime, if there are particular circumstances, to try that person as an adult. Um, but I think we need to be really careful about making that the rule for everyone. Harrington notes the recognized age of maturity in the U.S. was once 21 years old. While you still need to be 21 to buy alcohol or tobacco, you need only be 18 to vote or join the military, and you can be as young as 16 to begin driving a car. B.J. Casey explains why some young people can be trusted with adult-like responsibilities in some cases, but not others. When an individual functions as 
what you or I would call an adult. Um, we know that 16-year-olds probably could solve um, math problems, um, particularly if they, it wasn't a timed exam, more quickly and more accurately than perhaps um, we can um, when they have time to make decisions, so it's more like cold cognition. Uh, adolescents do just fine. It's in emotionally charged situations uh, where there may be more disinhibition, and if you have access to a gun, um, we may see more impulsivity and more inclination to then use that gun. Casey suggests the statistics do not back the generalization that video games adversely affect a juvenile's behavior, but she adds it is important to recognize that late adolescents' beliefs are heavily influenced by negative external pressures and influences, and they can carry out actions based on those beliefs, all while their brain has not yet fully matured. Michael Mrosiak, WBFO News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, August 4, 2022. So I have been told this is the Catherine Massey Book Club, our 12th installment on Catherine Pelinero's Absolute Madness. We are about literally one paragraph away from part five of the book. We are almost done. Uh, the audio segment that we started with, so we heard two. The first portion was with the author, one of the few interviews that she's done. It's not like a ton of them, but she did one interview some years back. This book was published in 2017. Interestingly, you heard some of her detail about why she wrote this book uh, to begin with. You heard her talk about her belief that Joseph G. Christopher did not kill Ernest Jones and Parler Edwards. These are the two black male cab drivers who were killed and had their uh, hearts extracted. She said that the evidence suggests that this was another killer. That would have been re that's the lead, in my opinion. Not mental health and not he was crazy. What? You had two black guys killed and you think Joey didn't do these two. Somebody else did this? Who? Why? Suspects. Something. That would be one. Next, the number of times Catherine Pellinero, white woman suspected racist, said that Joey was a good guy. Black people thought he was a good guy. All these people, he was a good guy, he was a good guy. Just had these mental problems, he was a good guy. I am a worthless Negro from Virginia. They say that I am bitter and rude and unprofessional and do not know how to talk to people. They have a lengthy list. I could not find five people, even my relatives, to come out that he is a good, you know, that Gus is a good guy. He is a good guy. He is a really good guy. Worthless Negro from Virginia. Mind you, they said he was popping pills at work. Did we read that in the book? How many pill-popping black people do you know that would get described as a good guy or gal? 
she said she oh man now you want to talk about suspected race soldier anytime I hear a white woman come to me and say hey I knew something had to be wrong here he couldn't have just been some old racist carving up black people I had black people contacted me to say oh Joe he wasn't a racist who is more informed about racism in fact I would look at any white person you start going up rounding up black people I wouldn't care if you grabbed my mother so oh, no I know that old Joey or any other white person is not a racist look what old Gus's mother said VGQ to mother and again I don't give the side eye to my mother or any other victim I give the side eye to the white person Catherine Pellinero some black person said that this white person isn't a racist and I gotta take that and run hmm we continue <clears throat> now we segue that was Catherine Pellinero in audio one the second audio segment little lengthy but hopefully worthwhile we go from talking about Joey's mental illness and oh poor thing to this was just a couple of days ago literally on WBFO public radio in Buffalo New York talking about whoa you know Peyton Gendron was only 18 when he committed these crimes his brain computer is still developing we don't just go out here and prosecute him like he's some old white adult crown my god he's practically a child my goodness he doesn't even have impulse control that way oh man I put the articles side by side I posted them on social media I put the report up Christopher sought treatment before killings started I put that right next to Buffalo shooting suspect underwent a mental health evaluation for murder suicide threats last year we may see a total repeat of all of this in the gender uh, trial he's got mental health problems and he's on or at the time he was 18 he's has a birthday so he's 19 now so-called birthday but <laughs> with a history repeats itself I guess we need this to continue learning we will get started context of white supremacy the Catherine Massey book club absolute madness audio segment one on May 24th Judge Marshall sentenced Joe Christopher to 60 years in prison 25 years to life for the murder of Glenn Dunn 20 years to life for the murder of Harold Green and 15 years to life for the murder of Emmanuel Thomas the sentences were to be served consecutively he would not be eligible for parole until the age of 85 by 2 p.m. the same day he was delivered to Attica Correctional Facility the following day he was transferred to Auburn prison over 100 miles further east for security reasons authorities felt it best to place him far away from western New York part 5 
the box. I have seen mad people, and I have known some who were quite intelligent, lucid, even clear-sighted in every concern of life, except on one point. They could speak clearly, readily, profoundly on everything, till their thoughts were caught in the breakers of their delusions and went to pieces there, were dispersed and swamped in that furious and terrible sea of fogs and squalls, which is called madness. Guy du Maupassant The Orla Chapter 18 I agree with the psychiatrists who diagnose this man as a paranoid schizophrenic, the staff psychiatrist that Auburn wrote on May 25, 1982. Joseph Christopher is a 26-year-old, single, white male who just arrived in the correctional system. A request was made to see if he was a suicidal risk. Mr. Christopher is a notorious case. There was much about him in the newspapers. Mr. Christopher has been seen by a number of psychiatrists during the past few months who examined him to see if he was competent to stand trial. He was in mid-Hudson to rule out malingering, or a psychotic process. He refused to have psychological testing performed. They diagnosed him as an atypical personality disorder. While in the stockade there is a history of alleged self-mutilation of the skin of the penis requiring sutures. We questioned Mr. Christopher directly about this. He said that someone had slipped him drugs, and he was out of control at the time. When examined today in the special housing unit, Mr. Christopher was guarded. He did not want to give any information. He felt it better not to. When asked if he was upset about what had happened, about the long sentence that he was recently given, and particularly the fact that he says he is innocent, Mr. Christopher said he is able to keep cool. During the interview, he had a certain smile on his face, almost fixed. He denied any suicidal intent. Right now, the number one risk is that another inmate will kill him, and so he will have to be watched very closely. Although possibly not acutely psychotic at present, he is a person who is very fragile and could decompensate very quickly. When he does decompensate, he will be a suicidal risk. The Department of Corrections decided to keep Joseph Christopher in permanent protective custody to prevent him being harmed by other inmates. He would be kept in solitary confinement, known as the Box, at Auburn. Prison psychiatrists checked on Joe daily. He refused to speak to them. He sat quietly in his cell. He wrote a letter to his sister. I love you. I still want the Tupperware. Also, I can receive 40 pounds of food a month. I want 30 pounds of eggplant. I don't want to have to eat too much state food. They put stuff in it. Make me hurt inside, and the base of my spine, and sometimes your shoulder joints, unless they switch that jar of pickles I set out. It will give pain and soreness in intestine and testicles. I hope to hear from the lawyer. Take care. Love you. Joseph Christopher. In early June, he was shipped to Rikers Island pending a court appearance on the New York City indictments. The district attorney in Manhattan asked Judge Benjamin Altman to vacate his prior ruling of incompetence for Joseph Christopher, 
based upon the determination by Justice William Flynn in Buffalo that Christopher was competent. Judge Altman declined to do so, stating that he was inclined to proceed with caution where there was a finding of incompetence made and reversed in such a short period of time. Frank Bress, a defense attorney in New York City, and Mark Mahoney were court-appointed counsel for the Manhattan cases. Given Christopher's animosity toward Kevin Dillon, it made sense for Mahoney to work with counsel in New York City. Frank Bress chaired the 18B Central Screening Committee, which assigned legal services to indigent defendants. He had formerly worked in the Criminal Defense Division for the Legal Aid Society of New York and currently taught a criminal defense clinic law at New York University School of Law. Bress had so far only met Christopher once, during the arraignment in a Manhattan courtroom in July 1981. He had been alarmed at Christopher's demeanor at the time. He'd found him catatonic. He had his first real meeting with his client in June of 1982. As Frank Bress would later recall, it was very clear to me that he had very serious psychiatric difficulties. It was hard to have a conversation with him where he stayed on track. He spun off into delusional topics. I couldn't get him to focus on anything substantive about his case. He kept talking about a conspiracy. At the time, I was doing a lot of homicide defense work dealing with psychiatric defense. I had represented people who were malingerers, and I had represented people who were seriously mentally ill. And he was seriously mentally ill. It was clear to me that he was not competent, and it was also clear to me that the best defense, if not the only defense, he had on the New York City charges was psychiatric. He refused to allow me to interpose the mental disease or defect defense, and that becomes a catch-22. If he's not competent, how can he make the decision? Contrary to his wishes, I made the motion for a competency hearing. Joe was taken to a clinic in the Manhattan courthouse, but refused to speak to the psychiatrist. He was then scheduled for a psychiatric examination at Rikers Island on June 9th. He refused to come out of his cell. He wanted to talk to his attorney. He called Frank Bress and asked him to come out to Rikers as soon as possible. His food was being poisoned, he said. He had managed to save a sample of it in a plastic bag, and he wanted his attorney to have it tested. Bress met with Joe prior to another court appearance in June. Once again, Bress attempted to discuss his case and the charges against him. He had his moments of lucidity, the attorney recalled. He could be helpful in talking about historical things, his family, his time in the army, but then he'd get caught in these little loops where things were tangentially related to one another but had nothing to do with the case. It was impossible to get him to focus. Bress asked him if and when he had been in New York City in December 1980. The West Village is full of fags, Joe told him. Christopher Street is the West Village. It's named after me, but I'm not gay, as Bress recalled. I had many, many conversations with him like that, where he'd spin off into things that made no sense at all. The client was adamant that he would not submit to mental examinations. Frank Bress inquired about the possibility of having Christopher committed to the psychiatric ward at New York's Bellevue Hospital 
if he continued to be uncooperative with the state psychiatrists. Hillel Bodek, an administrator at Bellevue, expressed concern over security at the institution. Bellevue was overcrowded, which would make it difficult to isolate Christopher. As the majority of the facility's population was black, Bodek feared for both the safety of Christopher and the hospital's patients and support staff. Bress spoke with Joe and told him that the psychiatric exams had been ordered by the judge and that they had to take place. Joe insisted he was eager to get to trial. Then cooperate with the psychiatrists, his attorney told him, and further advised that if he didn't speak with the state doctors, he might be sent to Bellevue. Christopher was delivered to court for an appearance the following day. He had refused to leave Rikers, but guards had told him one way or another he was going. Christopher was brought into the courtroom briefly and then sent to the holding pen while another case was heard. When he re-entered the court about twenty minutes later, Frank Bress noticed that he was wearing different clothes. Judge Altman asked Christopher why he refused to cooperate with psychiatrists. Christopher gave a rambling answer, disjointed and without a logical sequence, basically stating that he'd been found competent by Mid-Hudson, and he just didn't want to see any more doctors. The judge explained that he was aware of the prior examinations, but he was not going to accept these dated findings. He explained that it would be in Christopher's best interest to talk to the psychiatrist for an hour rather than be committed to a mental institution for a month. Joseph replied, I won't talk to any psychiatrists. Judge Altman ordered him directly to Bellevue for a period of thirty days. He was taken back upstairs to the holding pen until arrangements could be made for his transport to the institution. When Frank Bress emerged from court, reporters asked him about the incident that had happened upstairs with Christopher. He didn't know of any incident. Bress went and spoke to one of the court officers who told him that Christopher had been assailed by garbage and excrement thrown by inmates. Guards and officers had formed a circle around Christopher to shield him from further assault. Christopher had been hit by the refuse, and that's why he had changed clothes. Bress went to the correction office at the courthouse to inform a supervisor about the assault. The supervisor was unaware of the holding pen incident and was furious that a court officer had informed the attorney and the press. He called the correction desk and told the officer, You'd better tell those guys to mind their own business and learn to keep their mouths shut. The officer claimed that only water was thrown at Christopher. The supervisor didn't buy it. Bress remained in the office while the supervisor called Bellevue to see what arrangements were being made for Christopher to ensure his safety. Discussing the situation over the phone with Bellevue, the corrections supervisor said, There are inmates, and there are inmates, but inmate Joseph Christopher is like Adolf Hitler. The supervisor hung up and explained to Bress that his client couldn't be sent to Bellevue until early July. To house Christopher in a cell by himself, four inmates would have to be moved. They'd also have to arrange for a 24-hour one-on-one guard. Bress said that he hoped this would be adequate, to which the corrections supervisor replied, Why don't he just attempt an escape? Others have. 
and make it all easier on everyone. Teresa Christopher went to Rikers Island to visit her son. She and her daughters kept largely within their own tight circle. According to friends and neighbors, they did not mention or discuss Joe with anyone outside the family. Weber Avenue, at least outwardly, had returned to normal after Joe's sentence and transfer out of the city. The reporters no longer knocked on doors or showed up with cameras. There remained, however, a perceptible change, a lingering awareness about what had happened, and a sense of discretion. No one wanted to make things any worse for Teresa and the girls by bringing up what felt like an unmentionable subject. We all felt bad for the Christophers, Cheryl Schmidt recalled. We wanted them to know we cared, but nobody knew what to say. I ran into Mrs. Christopher at a grocery store that summer, and I said, Hello, Mrs. Christopher. She just kind of ducked her head. I think she was afraid of anyone recognizing her. I went to school with Joe's oldest sister, and I'd see her once in a while. There were many times I wanted to ask how Joe was doing, but I just didn't know if I should, so I didn't. Following his conviction, most people who knew Joe came to accept that he was guilty of being the twenty-two caliber killer. The big question was why. Laverne Becker still mentioned Joe to his niece. He missed him. It was quite the loss for Laverne. He lamented that he'd never see him again because Joe would spend the rest of his life in prison. Everyone seemed to agree that Joe must have snapped. That much seemed clear. As for the victims he'd targeted, people who had known Joe for a long time had their theories. I hate to say this, Cheryl Smith would say years later, but my Uncle Laverne was a very prejudiced person. He constantly ranted about blacks, but he didn't say blacks. He hated them, and he was very vocal about it. Joe spent a lot of time with Laverne, especially after Joe's dad died. I felt like my uncle had a big influence on Joe, and not a good one, at least when it came to that. Laverne was all about protecting the area from blacks. He had lived in that neighborhood forever, and he absolutely did not want any blacks living there, or even passing by, really. The neighborhood had started changing in the late 60s, and some black people had started to move in. He didn't want them here. He wanted them to stay out, stay away. According to neighbors, Mr. Becker found a kindred spirit in Nicholas Christopher. The two of them were pretty tight friends, and they'd just go off about it all the time, constantly using the N-word, said another resident. The city put in a basketball court in the Langweber playground at the end of our street. One night, somebody cut off all the basketball hoops, and everybody in the neighborhood believed it was Red Becker and Mr. Christopher. Joe and I were friends when we were kids, pretty good pals up until about the age of 12 or 13. I used to hang out at his house, and we'd camp in a tent in his backyard in the summer. We went our separate ways as teenagers, when he got into cars and hunting, and I was all about playing sports, and just saw each other occasionally. I wasn't in Buffalo at the time of the killings were happening, or when he was on trial. My mother sent me clippings from the newspaper. The guy they were describing didn't sound anything like the guy I knew. My memories of Joe were all good. 
He was a couple years older than me, and I remember him looking out for the younger kids. I came home crying on Halloween because a bully took all my candy, and Joe went and found him and got it back for me. The one thing that struck me when all this came out was thinking back about his dad and Red Becker, their attitude, and the way they always talked about blacks. Even for that time, they were extreme. I only heard that kind of talk when I was over at Joe's house, but Joe heard it all the time. I'm not saying that it was anybody else's fault that Joe did what he did. I wondered, though, when his mind went, if all that stuff he heard all the time about blacks when he was growing up had something to do with why he turned in that direction. The family of Laverne Becker confirmed that he and Nicholas were responsible for destroying the basketball hoops in an effort to keep black kids out of the playground. Dominic Cortese had been in elementary school and Cub Scouts with Joe. By the time his childhood friend made headlines, Dominic had long since moved away from the east side and owned a large and successful construction company. He kept in touch with guys from the old neighborhood, and naturally enough, they discussed the news about Joe Christopher. Everybody was stunned when they first announced who the killer was. Frankly, we thought it had to be a mistake. The most remarkable thing about Joe was how unremarkable he was. He was a nice kid, never a troublemaker, but very reserved and passive. He was hard to get to know. We more or less coexisted throughout elementary school and scouting, but never really became friends. My mom was the den mother for our Cub Scout pack, and I remember her feeling a little sorry for him, you know? Poor kid. He had to be cajoled into doing anything. A lot of us talked afterwards, and we tried to think back to who his good friends were, and we really couldn't come up with anybody. He never seemed to have any close connections. Another friend from those days remembered Joe much the same way and recalled Mr. Christopher, who volunteered with their Cub Scout pack, as a nice man. While most acquaintances from Joe's early childhood remembered Nicholas Christopher as just a strict Italian father, not terribly different from many others of that era, the dynamic seemed to change when Joe entered his teens. Joe's friends from adolescence and young adulthood described the same personality traits in Nicholas that others had observed. The racism, the criticism of his son, as intensified, or perhaps just more readily on display. Speaking of Nicholas, another friend and neighbor of Joe's said, He was the most racist guy I ever met in my life. If a black man walked by his house, he'd take pot shots at them with a pellet gun and yell out, You niggers don't come by my house. Get away from here. You don't belong here. Stuff like that. He was nuts, and he had a ton of guns. He was a small man in stature, but everybody knew that he had a million guns, so nobody messed with him. I was scared to death of him. So was Joey, actually. I was just glad I was the right color so to speak. My dad couldn't stand Mr. Christopher, and my dad had his own prejudices, but Joey's dad was something else. Now, Joey, he wasn't like that, his friend continued. Joey was the nicest guy ever. He liked everybody. Joey had black friends, but he had to be secretive about it. His dad didn't allow it, and he used to get his ass beat if he talked to anybody that wasn't white. Joey was friends with this one black kid named Greg. 
One day, his dad caught him walking home from school with Greg. Joey got in a shitload of trouble for that. We could always tell when his old man had worked him over because the next day he didn't say much, was very quiet and to himself, kind of closed in. He'd have a big shiner, and we'd ask, What happened to you? He'd say, Oh, I got in a fight with a bunch of niggers, or something like that. That's what he would tell everybody. And it wasn't that, because Joe had black friends. One day I said to him flat out, Joey, why don't you hit your old man back? He was in his late teens by then, and he was a couple inches taller than his dad. He said to me, I can't. He'll kill me. He just cowered in front of his father. The guy was such a bully. We'd hang out at the garage near Joey's house working on cars, the friend said. Joey was real proud of that 67 Camaro he had, the way he'd gotten it all fixed up. One day his dad walks in. Joey had the car all polished. Mr. Christopher looks and tells him there's a dent on the fender. Joey's saying, where, where? His dad keeps pointing and Joey tells him he doesn't see the dent. Mr. Christopher picks up a ball-peen hammer, smashes it down on the fender and says to him, you see it now? Joey just hung his head and walked away. He never stood up to his dad, and he never said a bad word about him either. His dad would call him names right in front of us, tell Joey he was like a queer. I never got why Joey kept taking it, why he never lashed back. I don't know. Maybe if you don't know anything else, it seems normal. Even those who didn't hang out at the garage sensed Joe's trouble at home. Marilyn Chamberlain was the mother of Joe's high school friends, Lee and Scott. Joe stayed at their home so often that Marilyn began to wonder. He'd be with us for days. I'd ask him, do your parents know where you are? He'd tell me, oh yeah, they know where I am. I didn't know his parents, so I didn't know what the situation was. I said, you sure I shouldn't be calling your mom or dad and finding out if it's okay for you to stay over like you do? because it was getting to be every night, you know. I finally took him aside one day and said to him, Honey, what's going on? Is everything okay? Did you get kicked out of your house? He said no, he hadn't been kicked out. I asked if he was having problems at home, and he told me, Well, I like my dad. He said he didn't get along with his mother or his sisters. One of his sisters was dating a black guy, and he didn't like that. I guess it caused problems with his dad. Joe was fine with us. He was always very courteous and nice to me, really sweet. One Christmas he gave me a beautiful crucifix. We had a lot of kids stay with us, but he was the only one who ever brought me a gift. He was a very nice kid, but there was something different about him, a little strange. He was very quiet. It was like pulling teeth to get him to talk, to carry on a conversation. He took to my kids and didn't want to leave. He liked being around our house. I think he just wanted to be in a quiet place, you know, some place where there wasn't a lot of yelling all the time. Scott Chamberlain was close friends with Joe for a period of five or six years, but had few memories of being at the Christopher home. When we'd stop by his house, we never stuck around. Joe always wanted to get the hell out of there as fast as he could. 
they used to keep these beagles, hunting dogs, and a kennel in the backyard, and it was up to Joe to clean out the kennels. We'd swing by so he could do what he had to do. His dad would come out and start yelling at him if the kennels weren't clean enough or whatever. Just start these fights in the driveway. A couple times, his dad ordered us to leave, or we just left on our own when the fighting started. One of Joey's sisters, one of the older ones, he didn't get along with at all. They would always have words. We spent a lot more time out at the cabin. The four of us would go out there, Joey, my brother Lee, Peter, Tramontina, and me. We'd go out on weekends to camp and do a lot of shooting. That's where Joey seemed to be the most relaxed, when it was just the four of us hanging out at the cabin. He'd worry, though, about anything breaking or getting messed up. He was deathly afraid of screwing anything up because of his father. We had to be really careful to leave everything exactly the way it was when we got there. The cabin seemed to be the place where Joe could escape the tensions of the city and his own home. As Scott recalled, Joey told us about his sister dating a black guy, and he wasn't too happy about that. Actually, it was the dad that was unhappy. His dad had found out about it. That might have been what one of the fights was about when we were over at the house once, but it's hard to remember exactly because there was always something. I don't ever remember Joey saying anything else about blacks other than that whole thing over his sister. Joey was the only son, and his dad expected him to do something about it. Marilyn Chamberlain recalled, we used to have this little dog that barked like mad whenever a black person walked by our house. I don't know why, because we always had black kids around, but he'd bark and chase them away. It was embarrassing. Once when Joe was over, I said, I don't know what's wrong with this dog, but he doesn't like black people. Joe said, My father's like him. I told him, Joe, don't talk about your father like that. And he said, I'm not kidding you. I was very surprised when Joe joined the Army, Marilyn said. It really surprised me that he'd get into something where he was bound to be yelled at a lot, because that's how things are in the service, and I thought, he went through all that at home, and now he's putting himself in the same position again. Like everyone else, the Chamberlains were stunned by Joe's arrest in Buffalo. They wanted to go and visit him at the holding center, but were told that Joe didn't want to see anybody. I thought for sure he'd see me, Scott said, but no. The Chamberlains were equally baffled by the sketches that had appeared in the newspaper. I looked at those pictures and I said, that's not Joey. At first I didn't believe any of it. After a while I thought, okay, the shootings with the twenty-two, that could be true because I knew Joey could shoot, and it was the, his, neighborhood, and I knew he was upset about that stuff that had gone on with his sister and his dad, not that it made any sense for him to go out shooting people. I guessed that he had just flipped out. I figured it had to be something his dad had said to him that set him off. When Joe's dad told him something, he was afraid of his father and I'm sure his father said something to him, and it just set him off. I thought maybe Joey did it to get back in his good graces, or prove himself after the fact, even though his dad was gone, something like that. I mean, what else would set him off? 
I didn't think it had anything to do with being bullied in school. Brigard was rough, but I don't remember Joey getting bullied any worse than anyone else. He never got beat up that I know of. I'm sure he would have said something because he knew damn well that the four of us, or the other three of us, we would have done something, and we got along pretty much with everybody around there. Joe's friends from the neighborhood had the same theory. As one put it, his dad was the ruler, you know. I mean, he ruled the whole house, and when he died, Joey took it real hard and kind of took over the man of the family thing, or tried to. He just snapped at some point, I guess. I can't give a reason for why Joey killed, because, I mean, he wasn't that type of guy. He really wasn't. For whatever reason, he just lost it. I'm not sure he did all those shootings, though. I think there was somebody else out there, too. The papers kept saying that Joe was a racist, and that's why he killed people. None of the explanations made any sense. There was a story about a black guy stealing a gun from him, and that's why he did it. Come on, who does that? Who wakes up one morning and says to himself, a black man stole my gun, so I think I'll go on a killing spree? As it turned out, the missing Beretta handgun that Joe reportedly thought had been stolen from a backpack in his basement, and which had led to the suspension of his pistol permit, had not been taken at all. According to Zach DeFusco, the gun was found in the basement months later by Teresa. It had fallen behind a sink. The friend continued, I'm not saying that Joey didn't do what they said he did, or at least some of it, but there had to be something else going on, something more than a stolen gun or being pissed off about high school. None of the stuff they were saying in the papers made any sense, if you knew Joe. There was another point on which most seemed to agree. Few were convinced that Joe had murdered Parlor Edwards or Ernest Jones. As Scott Chamberlain said, I never believed Joe had anything to do with cutting the hearts out of the cab drivers. The shootings, yeah, I can see that. But the thing with the hearts, that part I just said, no friggin' way. That's not Joey. I never believed he would go that far. I think they just tacked those on to him. There's no friggin' way Joey was that ruthless. Frank Bress had become a part of the conspiracy. He refused to have Joe's food tested for poison and drugs. He explained to Joe that he had discussed the matter with people he knew and trusted at Rikers and was assured that Joe's food had not been tainted. Joe clammed up and would have nothing further to do with him. In court, Joe raved to the judge, It's a fucking conspiracy! Joe spent two weeks in Bellevue. He was discharged on July 26th, his 27th birthday, and returned to Rikers Island. He wrote home, A poor fool in rags is all I care to be. I don't need the once-removed, conversated form of programming. I don't want the drugs. I am not a racist. Everyone should socialize under one good. Ignorance is happiness. He who keeps closest to the earth with the wind is best off. Jesus, I ask you, are the wind? Bellevue informed Frank Bress that they were awaiting receipt of Christopher's military documents before completing their report. Social worker Hillel Bodek told the attorney that he hoped the material would be available soon, 
because Christopher was eager to go to trial. Bodek was of the opinion that Christopher was capable of cooperating with his attorney when he wanted to. As for the military records, Bodek said he didn't expect to glean much additional information. Major Law's report, he said, was sufficient for him to form a background opinion. He felt that Christopher was crazy at the time he cut his penis in the stockade. Acute psychosis with remission. Of his own interview with Christopher, the social worker said, I certainly think he's given me enough to go on. I'm waiting, officially, for the military reports, but my suspicion is that he'll be found fit. There's no evidence of either delusional thinking or behavior at this point. Asked if his meeting with Christopher had shed any light on his refusal to talk about his decisions, Bodek said, My feeling is that they gave him sixty years to life, so what more can they do to him? He's not going to participate in this shit. He's had it with shrinks. He's had it with the whole thing. He's competent. He's fit. I think he should go to trial. Unless there's something super spectacular or surprising in the military stuff, which I don't expect there will be, then I know how I would find him. It's like I said all along. If he doesn't give us any indication to show he's unfit, he's fit. Frank Bress had been cautious with Joe on the issue of the competency exam. He was afraid that if Joe knew he had requested it, the attorney-client relationship would be further damaged. Bodek told Joe it was Bress who had asked for the examination. At a hearing before Judge Altman on July 27th, Joe asked the judge if this was true. The judge hesitated, telling him that having the exam was in everyone's best interest, especially his own. Joe argued that he was competent, by a preponderance of the evidence. The case was adjourned until September 21st, pending receipt of the report from Bellevue and completion of the competency phase which Frank Bress felt should also include an examination by an independent psychiatrist. Joe asked if he could be sent to Auburn Prison instead of Rikers Island in the meantime. Bress told Joe that going back to Auburn would make it impossible for him to be examined by an independent psychiatrist Bress had contacted in Manhattan. Joe said it didn't matter, since he wasn't going to talk to the doctor anyway. His request was granted and he was returned to Auburn. Why? Why do people want to be mean? I don't want to be mean, and I am not. So then I am locked up, and every movement I make, and even just breathing, sitting, and sleeping, is vicious, or has subverted, underlain, or hidden intent to some averted eye. How did I get here? I used to play with children and walk old ladies to the store and shovel snow from walks at four in the morning before I went to work. In September, Joe wrote a letter to Judge Frederick Marshall, who had convicted him in the Buffalo trial. He asked if Judge Marshall would consider representing him on his appeal. He also wrote that he'd like to return to Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center because he'd been unable to explain his feelings and reasoning when he was there before. Teresa visited Joe at Auburn. 
He told her he had decided to plead insanity in the New York cases. He said he'd had what he since had figured out were delusions. He asked her to write to Kevin Dillon and sent him a note that he wrote. The note read, Hello, it is me. Who am I? I am an entity in a hypothetical. I tried to go to the bug house, but they would not let me in, so I was unreadable. The voice told me everywhere I went, the voice where now I don't listen to the voice. I am in prison and don't belong here because I am good. Do you understand me? What voices? Delusion. If the TV is talking and you think it is talking to you, delusion. Or people are talking and you think they are programming you. Teresa asked Joe why he hadn't told Kevin about this before. He said he couldn't talk about it then. He thought he should go back to Mid-Hudson. He said he thought that if he pleaded insanity, he could get the previous sentence overturned and might get out of jail or a mental institution some day. His mother told him it was very unlikely that would ever happen. In late October, Joe was sent to Mid-Hudson from Auburn. It was not by his own request, however, but at the request of prison psychiatrists, who advised that he was non-communicative and a suicide risk. He also had to be examined for competency. Bellevue still had not submitted their report. Dr. Paul Chalapa, who had deemed Joe competent earlier that year before Judge Flynn in Buffalo, met with him once again. I came back because the last time I was unable to discuss the crime I was charged with in detail, Joe told him. According to the report filed by Chalapa on October 31st, Joe said he was in Manhattan in December 1980. He bought a knife and stabbed a man. He could not account further for the crime except to say he had to kill this man. He wouldn't elaborate except to say, I tell you I did it. I did it with my hands. I killed a man. This was in New York. When he was asked if he was confessing to a crime, he replied, No, I'm just telling you what I did because I was unable to tell you the last time. I hope you can understand. I wanted to discuss this with my attorney and then go back to stand trial. Dr. Chalapa wrote, Having known this patient in the past, he continues to be stubborn with a teasing trait. No psychopathology indicative of any mental disorder noted. On November 4th, Joseph was examined by Dr. Ting, another psychiatrist at Mid-Hudson. Joseph related that the charges against him stemmed from around July 1979 in Erie County. Dr. Ting quoted Joe's statement, I was at my parents' house. I was working, sweeping streets and shoveling snow for my neighbors. I joined the U.S. Army. I don't remember the dates, but I started shooting people on the street with a twenty-two caliber rifle left to me by my father. I sawed off the tip, hiding it in a paper bag. I shot without knowing who the person was, only I know they were of dark skin at close range. I can remember thinking I had nothing to lose. I shot three people, but actually four, and left them there. I shot them in the head. It was broad daylight, and at night, too. 
There were some people around. I think somebody saw me. A lady saw me sitting. Then I left. I shot four people in a couple of days. I left and went to a nearby shopping center and went home. I got rid of the rifle by melting it with a torch. Regarding the New York City crimes, Dr. Ting noted that Joe was not sure of the date. It may have been September 17, 1979, or Christmas. I went to New York City by bus because I thought I had to kill people. I purchased a kitchen knife, ten inches, at Macy Department Store. Went to the street. I don't remember how many I stabbed in the chest. One person fights with me, and he ran away later. I threw away the knife. I don't know where. I was supposed to have explained this to my lawyer. Dr. Ting stated that Joseph grasped his charges of second-degree murder. I killed someone. I shot and stabbed people. The psychiatrist had him explain the role of judge, jury, and attorneys. When asked how he would plead, Joe answered, I will talk to my lawyer about this. What happens if you are convicted? I go to prison. If found not guilty, my lawyer defends me. I go to some places so I wouldn't be stabbing or shooting people. Dr. Ting concluded that Joseph had a schizoid personality disorder that did not interfere with his ability to cooperate with his lawyer or assist in his own defense. He declared him, at present, competent to stand trial. He was sent back to Rikers Island. On December 15, 1982, Mark Mahoney sent a letter to Erie County District Attorney Richard Arcara. Dear Mr. Arcara, on or about November 22nd of this year, Tony Farina, investigative reporter with WGR-TV, Channel 2, reported on television that Mr. Christopher had confessed to psychiatrist that he was responsible for four twenty-two caliber killings in the Buffalo area, in addition to killings in New York City, and represented that this had been confirmed with law enforcement officers in Erie County. Frank Bress, co-counsel for Mr. Christopher, checked with James Vogel, in charge of the New York prosecution, who confirmed that information concerning the results of psychiatric examinations was only provided to members of your office and not to any other officials, such as police, sheriff, state police, etc. Therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that your office is directly responsible for leaking of this information. Obviously, this is an ethical problem for whichever assistant district attorney may have revealed this information, but it may be the subject of future applications to the court, since there are pending indictments against Mr. Christopher in Erie County and unresolved appeals. I am providing the information to you at present so that you can cause the matter to be investigated and take whatever action you deem appropriate. Joe was back to insisting that he was not mentally ill. He wanted a non-jury trial immediately. He was also insisting, once again, that his food at Rikers was being poisoned and refused to eat. He protested vociferously when they shipped him to Bellevue again on November 29th. Once there, he would not cooperate with doctors and staff who tried to speak with him. He refused all medical tests. The only thing he had to say was that he had no mental illness. 
Bellevue submitted their report to the court on December 1st. Their diagnosis was borderline personality disorder, which they claimed did not interfere with his ability to understand the charges or effectively cooperate with counsel, if he chose to do so. Although the patient may have a defense of lack of criminal responsibility or of extreme emotional disturbance in which he refuses to cooperate, and although he may wish to have a judge trial and waive a jury, he is correct in his view that such decisions are his to make. He certainly understands the consequences of such decisions, as has been explained to him by counsel. Such decisions are knowing and volitional. Psychodynamically, this case presents a young man with a history of learning disabilities, who had a stormy relationship with his father and who has been frustrated in his attempts to succeed in school. Often, learning disabled persons grow up quite frustrated at their limitations, which they cannot understand. Family dynamics often exacerbate such feelings, and as in this case, lead to the person's developing diminished self-esteem, lessened self-confidence, and depression. The patient developed significant and appropriate anger at his predicament, which he feared and attempted to control. Yet eventually it built up and surfaced, under the pressure of having to prove himself and under the added strain of his father's death. He is a lonely and depressed individual, who fears being taken advantage of by others and fears losing control of his own emotions, which threaten to overwhelm him. He struggles to maintain his limited sense of self and sense of independence. Were he to lose this sense of self-control over his life, he might well decompensate into a depressive psychosis once again, something he defends against. Although competent and not presently psychotic, this patient suffers from significant chronic mental illness. He is somewhat fragile emotionally and has erected significant defenses to protect himself. Under pressure, he might once again decompensate and or become actively suicidal. In other words, he was significantly mentally ill and could have another psychotic breakdown under stress, but okay to stand trial. Bellevue certified him as competent and shipped him back to Rikers Island. Judge Altman was not so content to accept findings of competency from two overcrowded state institutions with an interest in cycling patients through their doors as expediently as possible. He granted Frank Bress's request for an examination of Joseph Christopher by an independent, board-certified psychiatrist context of white supremacy alrighty so that is audio segment one uh, we will pick up uh, second audio segment uh, we are I lost track of the chapters because the segmentations in the ebook I have are by book parts so we're still kind of the early part of chapter five anyway Catherine Pellinero absolute madness the Catherine Massey book club Whew. ready to roll Folks who have commentary, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. 
Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email, untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com if you have commentary are not able to dial in or concerned about people recognizing your voice drop us an email we can share your thoughts questions about the book and read them on the air uh, before we get to some of the folks who dialed in uh, we'll nab some of the emails as well uh, first up one of our investors uh, black female she writes hi Gus and callers my comments on last week's reading and a few points I did not cover Last week, number one, I mentioned the 900 sexual abuse cases against the Catholic Church in Buffalo. What I didn't mention is that they date back to 1941, covering the period of Joseph Christopher's childhood well into early adulthood, all the way up to 2006 even. In fact, I posted one of the articles uh, from Buffalo, it's Buffalo News? I think it's Buffalo Evening News. I'll double check, but I think it's Buffalo Evening News, but I posted today, uh, this is from some years back, man, their report, the lawsuit identifies 230 priests as child molesters, including eight of Western New York's most accused abusers, who has a most accused abuser list. And of course, they have a photo of a child raping white man. And they say Buffalo Evening News, or Buffalo News, excuse me, the numbers are a striking rebuke to Buffalo Diocese officials who for decades downplayed the extent of the abuse in the area and protected child molester priests from prosecution and public accountability that's what happens to white people I bet they said they had mental health problems too back to our listener excellent find from last week white people do not care about children number two the priest demonstrates his white code and adherence to the no snitch policy by not revealing the confession of the crimes given by Joey Contrast this with him handing over the letters Joey wrote to his mother to the police earlier in the reading. Letters I believe he thought would support Joey being acquitted of the murders. Letters his mother claimed she did not know the priest would hand over to the police. Mm, I believe she knew exactly what the priest would do and expected the police would give the letters greater weight because they came via the priest. Hmm, that's something to think on. Number three, again, I would love you to interview the author. Me too. I don't think she does very many interviews. Like I played, we played a little bit of her today talking about the book, but it was like, man, having to do some sleuthing uh, to find like it wasn't, this is a best-selling author. They normally have piles and piles of interviews on YouTube and every place else. 
not Catherine Pellinero for this book, unless I've just been lame in my searching. I would love to interview her too, either way. Uh, who to me is as dishonest and I suspect racist as the author Alice Seabold. Oh, we read two white women this year. I'm getting nauseated by her painting Teresa as a saintly mother, yet no sympathy for the mothers of the victims. She also demonstrates her racist views and how she presents the racist statements made by the police various witnesses such as the prison guards and Joey's neighbors I believe they are white even though they even though not stated explicitly which is not the case when black characters are referred to well, she got a boatload more commentary like that today Pelinero offers no commentary just presents various racist viewpoints or comments of the white characters then moves on including the numerous racist statements made by Joey Christopher this is in contrast to the endless justifications of Joey's actions sympathy for his mother and sisters to even the interference that the police are manipulating Donna to give false accounts against Joey. In my opinion, Pelinero is expressing her views about black people through the statements of the various people involved. Again, well, let us really pay attention to what we got today because a boatload more. Continuing, it was interesting that Pelinero said she has no memory of these events even though she grew up in the area she said that again today in the interview again it makes me wonder about her justification for writing this book she talked about that today in the interview perhaps she does have a link to the Christopher family hmm at minimum to the police department so to exonerate their in my opinion lame racist work Number five, Pelinero doesn't seem to challenge Joey's Joseph Christopher's guilt, just his competence to stand trial. Well, she did say she doesn't think he was guilty of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones. We got that today and then repeated in the book. So my question to her would be what should be done or how, if at all, should he be held accountable? Hmm. Number six, I don't think Joey's suspicion the army was drugging his food was a sign of madness. The army is known to force soldiers to take all kinds of drugs and to experiment on them. True. And Pelinero will be aware of this in 2018 at the time this book was published. True. If anything, it shows how astute he is. Number seven, Pelinero wrote about Joey's serial killer persona. He stabbed a fellow black soldier, is a two-time attempted rapist, assaulted a black female, and expressed hatred for black people, in particular black males. I think it's more than a persona. Indeed. Number eight. Why do they keep referring to Joey as a loner? We got that again today. They got whole big newspaper articles. Loner. Smart. Quiet. Clearly, he is not socially awkward, perhaps, but not a loner. Do the police ever investigate Kenny Paulson, who should have been charged with obstruction of justice, and Peter Tramontino as accomplices? I guess not. I'm definitely wondering about Kenny Paulson's involvement in the crimes. He knew the family, so... Hmm. Number nine, at minimum, why was... What did I just say? What did I just say? What did I just say? Number nine, at minimum, why was Kenny Paulson not charged with attempting to prevent the course of justice? 
There's absolutely no way he did not know Joey Christopher when he was dating Angela Christopher. She had made clear he closely monitored her behavior and acted like her father. What's the likelihood he did not know she was dating Kenny Paulson? or of him not making Kenny know how he expected his sister to be treated. Number 11. I'm glad you selected this book. This case is important for a variety of reasons, including demonstrating how strong the white code is. It proves once and for all, in my opinion, that white people are not greatly or significantly pinged by racism. I may have paraphrased Ta-Nehisi Coates, but hopefully this is close enough to make my point. Absolutely. So many examples of people failing to report murder or being told not to provide evidence, including police officers. Thanks for the platform. Indeed, it is uh, informative, if nothing else. Anywho... Uh, let's see. Get to some of the folks who dialed in. I'll get my notes and the rest of the emails. Uh, Bay Area Mom should be with us. If you have uh, thoughts, questions, should be with us. Feel free. Oh, thank you. Can that be heard? Yes, ma'am. All right. All right. So, I was just at the beginning clip with the, when the lady, um, not the lady, the Arthur the way she had it, uh, it's written to defend him, uh, I, I, I presume, because he's so innocent, and this is why. So it just seems like, to me, maybe she's describing his mental breakdown because it's just like, oh, he became ill. You know, it's like he just, you know, got sick like he had the flu. He just became ill, and... His mind betrayed him. Like, what? I wish they had that kind of compassion for uh, some of the black men whose mind betrayed them before they become ill from maybe abusive backgrounds and so forth. They're really digging deep about his dad and how his dad was so abusive. I thought he was the American man's man. Now he's abusive. Got it. So I, I figured his dad was abusive already. But a lot of people come from um, uh, different uh, stressful backgrounds, but nobody has these kind of defenses. That's 12 years old. Oh, you're an adult. This one, we need his brain to develop. That's funny. Well, they didn't say that about him, but I'm just thinking back to other uh, clips from the um, program. Um and, oh, wait, 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 how he was seeking help just days before this incident. He went to go get some help, and they turned him away. We've got to deal with how we deal with mental illness. It wasn't his fault. He just went off on it. So I just, oh, they have it so cool the way they defend their own. is oh, priceless. White power. Um, oh, and the basketball hoop. Uh, whomever and what was the other guy, somebody named Nicholas, I think, how they would go and cut the hoops um, from the basketball courts when they would put them up. Uh, I wonder who really does that now when there's no hoops 
in the uh bas on the basketball court? Is it uh gang bang and tech or is it Nicholas? So it just makes you wonder now when they act like we're tearing up our own stuff, is it us or do you think we don't deserve it? It's, I don't know, it just made me think. And um somebody mentioned Uncle Laverne. I don't know. But how everybody else is a racist, it's not that all of you are racist. Now, this poor Uncle Laverne that loved uh, Joey and corrupted his mind. Oh, where does mine go? So, uh, and but then people say, well, he was hard to get to know, but I thought it was just so super duper, so wonderful. But he was hard to get to know, and he didn't have any friends. Ah, you guys are funny. And um, I think he took his um, aggression out on black people, too. All of whatever, however his dad and whatever his stuff was and being a little shorty, Joey Midget. I think he took it out on um, black people like all white people do. Maybe that's why they keep us around. They don't get rid of all of us, too, because you need somebody to kick around and pick on. So that's all. Um, oh, the dog. <laughs> <laughs> the dog, the dog, white dog. <laughs> okay, I'll mute my line. <laughs> that is what we were reading this time two years ago. Rome. Oh my God. Can you all believe it? We had uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the program yesterday for the third time. In his book, he mentions. Romaine Gary, author of White Dog, which we were reading at this time, 2020, just two years ago. Woo! Incredible. Cow's Book Club. Oh, and just before we move forward, uh, if it were, I do think it means something. She mentioned the basketball goals being ripped down. Says, yeah, they wanted to keep the niggers out of the, the neighborhood so they would go take the basketball hoops down. Nicholas is Joey's father, if that means anything to you, Bay Area mom. Just, you know, what, what, what's that tacky metaphor they say? They say, they say, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. But just for the record, yes, Nicholas is not just some random fella in the neighborhood. Nicholas is Joey's dad who's going out because they want to keep the Negro children out of the neighborhood. So they go in East Buffalo, in East Buffalo. This is where the Negros are, the Negrish side of town. So they go take the basketball hoops down, keep the Negros out. That's Joey's dad. Anywho, let's see. Um, I'll do some of my notes, see if other folks have calls. We have emails uh, to get to as well. So I'll uh, do notes and star six one if folks have commentary they have uh, would like to get to. Let's see. Lots of notes this week. Glad we read this book as well. Eggplant. Can't believe it. Eggplant. Isn't that? We'll get to the emojis later. All right. So in chapter 18 part five the box even on that pause for Khalif Browder and man, Geronimo Pratt we just talked about him yesterday Bay Area he was in the box for years Vietnam veteran 
he didn't go and enlist and start stabbing up the fellows that he enlisted with he did two tours two purple hearts Geronimo Pratt anyway chapter 18 <clears throat> let's see so he's been seen by number side again we're going to probably see a lot of this again Peyton Gendron who is 18 at the time of these murders so that's going to be emphasized like hey Joseph Christopher was 25 like this is a babe they're going to be saying he was a teenager oh. let's see uh, alright so he's going to get his evaluation uh, back up here uh, we're, second attorney Brez uh, we want to get another psychological evaluation uh, and these Brez is talking about him and saying that he's, you know, he could be competent. He could talk at sometimes and he get, you know, distracted in his madness or what have you. Uh, he says uh, he would ask him if he was in New York in December of 1980. Christopher responds, the West Village is full of fags. The street in the West or it's named after me, but I'm not gay. Christopher Street is in the West Village. It's named after me, but I'm not gay. Make sure I get it correctly. Even that because this is brought up so many times in the book. Questions about his masculinity. Him being upset because his man, uh, excuse me, his father, Nicholas, uh, is calling him gay or wuss or whatever. Uh, and then the soldiers are teasing him for wetting the bed, teasing him about his manhood. He said, I'm upset about my manhood and all the rest. Or he said, you know, I'll give you a blowjob for extra food and all of this slicing his own peanut, wrestling with Ernest. All of this homoeroticism and homosexual talk and all the rest of it, anti-sex. Even this where this coming and it's got to be the denial. We weren't even told. Nobody even said you were gay. We're just we're in New York and we get to all this gay and I'm not gay, you know. What? You got some questions about your manhood and that abuse thing that we talked about before, the diocese in Buffalo and uh so we continue from there. Uh Frank Bress inquires about uh getting him committed to the psychiatric ward. Uh let's see. Bellevue was overcrowded, which would make it difficult to isolate Christopher as the majority of the facility's population was black. Bodek feared for both the safety of Christopher and the hospital's patients and support staff. I'll go latter first. Uh, it seems like the primary concern was for Christopher and then, oh yes, the other Negroes that are here and you know everybody else. That's one. The other component, man, this is the second time where we're talking about some locked institution caged facility if you will and it's mostly black people again mostly black males black male privilege why is that why do they have all these institutions scratch why do they have all these institutions where people are caged and it's mostly negro males why 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 is that what what type of a privilege is that hmm Khalif Browder Let's see. We continue. 
When Frank Bress emerged from court, reporters asked him about the incident that had happened upstairs with Christopher. He didn't know of any incident. Bress went and spoke to one of the court officers who told him that Christopher had been assailed by garbage and excrement thrown by inmates. Guards and officers had formed a circle around Christopher to shield him from further assault. Christopher had been hit by the refuse, and that's why he had changed clothes. Now, I pause right there. <clears throat> now, they are supposed to have some sort of professional environment. If you're in greater confinement, they have custody of you. They are responsible for your safety, for sure. That said, last week, we heard about Christopher taunting mostly black inmates I should have killed more of you shut up you nigger shut up you coon Arr, I killed all of you Arr, shut up be quiet you can't even read remember that all of the illiteracy and he's telling you can't even read and write shut up you nigger remember that last week and they they didn't say when Joey does this they stuff him in solitary they gag him and don't give him any food they punch him in the groin that's not what they said they said they locked down the Negros and Joey would get bribed with ice cream. Come on, Joey, don't call them Negros today. Come on, Joey, calm down. We'll give you double scoops. Chocolate syrup on top. Extra nuts. Being foolish for sure. But I mean, that's what they said. That's what she said last week. So that's last week. This week. Oh, you you mean the Negro males they remembered and they threw urine and garbage on old Joey. Oh, darn. Oh, I, I feel so bad. Oh, poor, poor Joey. Please. Maybe behave. Be quiet. Stop terrorizing black people, black males in particular. Anyway, uh, they said Bress remained in the office while the supervisor called Bellevue to see what arrangements were being made for Christopher to ensure his safety <laughs> safety of the white racist serial killer discussing the situation over the phone with Bellevue the corrections supervisor said there are inmates and there are inmates but inmate Joseph Christopher is like Adolf Hitler the supervisor hung up. Now that is an analogy. Hey, he wants to come in here and practice racism. Well then, hey, we can only do so much. Click. <laughs> and that, hey, hey, what they call natural consequences, buddy. And no extra shower for you either. You don't get any privileges. No ice cream today either. Let's see. Everyone seemed to agree that Joe must have snapped. I don't even know what that means. Like, what are you talking about? What is that? Snapped. Oh, snap. They still do that? That's old. You say, uh, that much seemed clear. As for the victims he targeted, people who had known Joe for a long time had their theories. And I said, oh, let's let's see now keep in mind what the listener said when we get these bits of racism how does Pelinero feed them to us what does she say how are they narrated let's see she says I hate to say this Cheryl Smith would say years later but my uncle Laverne was a very prejudiced person should we think about that I didn't really 
don't know. They they say you being homophobic. Oh, homophobic, bitter cuss. Is that Uncle Laverne? Is that is that a masculine? Am I? They don't do that anymore. Is that a map? Do they they do that? You're not supposed to do that. Say this is not a a male name and get out of that. It's no such thing. Is that strange? Especially since we've been talking about all this homosexual, antisexual, having an Uncle Laverne or I don't. Maybe I'm I'm being foolish. I'm sorry. So. Uh, that was Bay Area mom started because I wasn't even thinking that, but she did say something about that. So that's maybe both of us are, are being, you know, silly. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, let's see. My uncle Laverne was a very prejudiced person. He constantly ranted about blacks, but he didn't say blacks. Now, see, that's the sort of thing I don't like that, man. Make it plain. What do you mean? What did he say? Because I mean, hey. He might not have been saying nigra. Make it plain. So was it coon? Spear chucker? Make it plain. Don't sanitize it. That's We got enough of that yesterday with Pro. Everything is redacted and all that. Make it plain. What'd he say? Especially since Joey ain't racist, right? You got all these nigras lined up to say, oh no, he's the best white man ever. When he's popping pills. It continues. Uh, he didn't say blacks. He hated them. And he was very vocal about it. Joe spent a lot of time with Laverne, especially after Joe's dad died. I felt like my uncle had a big influence on Joe. And not you, Cheryl Smith? He didn't influence you. He was your uncle, your relative. He he did all that racism and they, I don't know. I'm spear chucker, coon. All that didn't impact how you think about black people, Cheryl Smith. Okay. Uh, my uncle had a big influence, not a good one. At least Laverne was all about protecting the area from blacks. Had he lived in that neighborhood forever? And he absolutely did. Oh, excuse me. He had lived in that neighborhood forever. And he absolutely did not want any blacks living there. I even get a pause right here. This is why I say when we had Nicholas Krauss on the program, his book, uh, Race, uh, Neighborhoods and Community Power in Buffalo. Or it's NACE, Race, Neighborhoods and Community Politics in Buffalo and it's from like 1930 something to 1990s to not include anything about this when I said you got Joseph Christopher's dad Nicholas taking down the basketball hoops to keep the Negras out his dad said oh no no don't take the bus to school the Negras are there him saying he was bullied at school with the Negras all the busing was happening in Buffalo at that time, we've had these uh, lame white professors on who talk about so-called school integration in Buffalo. They don't mention this case. Either. I say it's dang. It's right in the middle of the uh, investigation here. Come on. Didn't want any blacks living. They are even passing by. The neighborhood had started changing in the late 60s and some black people had started to move in. He didn't want them here. He wanted them to stay out, stay away. According to the neighbors, Mr. Becker found a kindred spirit 
in Joey's dad. Uh, let's see. The city put up a basketball court in the Langweber playground. One night somebody cut off all the basketball hoops. Now even the time and energy of that. I'm not sleep at night. I don't wait till the sun go down. I go to bed. I'm not trying to watch the Buffalo Bills. Nah. <laughs> We're out with a ladder chopping down basketball goals to keep Negras out. How does everybody in the why did everybody think you two did it in the neighborhood? Did they know you did it? Did you all talk about this? Did they cheer you on and support this effort? Did you all brag about this like everybody has bragged about killing Negras in the book? Let's see. The one thing that struck me, oh, because I get a Let's see. This is Joe and I were friends. Uh, this didn't strike me as him. But the one thing that struck me when all this came out was the thinking back about his dad and Red Becker, their attitude and the way they always talked about blackness. He even that. How many of you all, what things do you always talk, I mean for years when people talk about you and say what were you always talking about for years what are they going to say some of us would be embarrassed Dallas Cowboys Kobe Bryant Kobe LeBron James Donald Trump coon of the decade I don't know it can be some embarrassing things but I don't think it's going to be hating white people I don't think it's going to be that for non-white I don't think it's going to be that for most of the victims of white supremacy it's going to be rare like albino rare metaphor to pile up non-white people you say what was this person always talking about oh my god how they hated crackers every day I hate crackers I hate crackers all oh, these crackers I hate white people I, who was that who was that I can't even think of anybody who even try to slide it over all this person talked about was producing justice that Mr. Fuller doctor was but that list even that list it would be short this is another one when I say hey the brain computer of individuals classified as white is very different from the brain computer of individuals classified as not white I don't mean the structure I am talking about in terms of what they're thinking about what are we thinking about they continue always even for that time they were extreme now that oh my god you need to give me the details that's one of those that makes it that's so that's kind of sounding like all of the white people 
are racist, but then you got some that like, hey, they may tell five or ten nigger jokes every day. Then you got some. <sighs> We're out taking the basketball hoops down, shooting at black people. We got the hunting gallery up with O.J. Simpson's picture as the target. Like, give me the details on that one. This bang. That might be another example of Catherine Pellinero's racism. If a black author had access to the same material that she did, I don't think a black author, Neely Fuller Jr., Dr. Welsing, me, you get a white person that tells me all this, all that mental health is going to be in the rubbish bin. You're going to have to give me the details on all of this. You're not going to tell me anything, and I mean nothing. Catherine Pellinero already knows about the cows. She'll probably never talk to us you are not gonna ever sit here or any other white person and tell me about mental health and oh he had a breakdown and he was crazy and bipolar when his dad was an extreme racist who found kindred spirit with the other extreme racists in the neighborhood and they always talked about their hatred of black people and this is who he hung out with for the formative years of his life and then stand there and tell me I don't care if you like I said you could pile up everybody in my family you could pile up all the cows investors all the cows list retired firefighter Bay Area mom you go right down the list all of them Joseph G. Christopher is not a racist. I got signed affidavit, retired firefighter signature right there. Not a racist. VGQ. And again, I don't look at any of those non-white people with the side. I, I look at Catherine Pellinero for real, for real. All the information that you got and you're going to tell me that because Ernie Smith and these other confused victims who probably didn't see all this information. What? His dad said, what? They took the what? <laughs> I don't think Ernie Smith and all these folks know all that, but whatever. You're going to say because these confused. Oh, we love Joey. He used to kick it with us. He was great. Mm-hmm. Anywho, she doesn't go into detail the way she does with all the rest of it. Continuing, let's see. Dom Dominic Cortez had been in elementary school and Cub Scouts with Joe. I highlighted that just because right there with the diocese, the Boy Scouts of America is bankrupt because of child rape. Full stop. Continue. Uh, back up. Make sure I get the full thing. <laughs> Nicholas Christopher, wait a minute, from Joe's early childhood, most acquaintances from Joe's early childhood remembered Nicholas Christopher as just a strict Italian father, not terribly different from many others of that era. The dynamic seemed to change when Joe entered his teens. Joe's friends from adolescence and young adulthood described the same personality traits in Nicholas that others had observed. The racism. How does the whole neighborhood think of your dad as a racist? An extreme racist.
criticism of his son as intensified or perhaps just more readily on display. Speaking of Nicholas, another friend and neighbor of Joe said he was the most racist guy I ever met in my life. If a black person walked by his house, he'd take pot shots at them with a pellet gun and yell out, you niggers don't come by my house. Get away from here. You don't belong here. Stuff like that. Now that one, I don't got it. Now that one sentence right there is enough. Like I said, all of that, I don't care what. You could pile up every doctor, Harvard, best credentials, impeccable credentials, work history. He's a nut. He's crazy. I don't care. He could have went crazy and killed white people. Anybody. Lots of people. That's not what he did. He goes crazy and strangely does exactly what his dad does. Take shots at black people. Is his dad crazy? They say that can be what they call it, genetic, right? One generation to the next. Maybe Nicholas Christopher was crazy too. And that was how his illness expressed itself. He would have to go out and take down the basketball hoop and take pot shots at Negras. How many people want to bet that that was probably some black children? Now, pause. This is not 1950. This is not Alabama. This is not Mississippi. In the 1970s. Who thinks you could be classified as non-white? Black. Go outside with a gun of any sort, even a water gun, Tamir Rice, Jonathan Crawford III, and take shots at a white person. Get out of here. Cacao, cacao. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 dad taking shots. Uh, he was, no, they did say he was, oh my God, they did say he was nuts right after that. So he would go outside and take shots. Boom, boom, boom. I said, is, this, is, Nicholas, uh, is Nicholas Christopher crazy too? He was nuts. He had a ton of guns. He was a small man in stature, but everyone knew that he had a million guns, so nobody messed with him. I was scared to death of him. So was Joey, actually. I was just glad I was the right color, so to speak. That's almost like a mild racist joke. <laughs> Thank God I was white. <laughs> Would have killed me. <laughs> eh, not joking. Eh, let's see. My dad couldn't stand Mr. Christopher and my dad had his own. See, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. The way they're talking, it sounds like everybody white is racist. It's just a matter of now, do I come out and take shots at black people? Do I tell 50 nigger jokes a day? Five. Maybe I don't say nigger at all. Maybe even have a black friend. It's just a matter of degrees, but we are all white supremacist racist that's what it sounds like let me do it again so was joey scared of his dad actually i was just glad i was the right color <laughs> so to speak my dad couldn't stand mr christopher and my dad 
had his own racism, but Joey's dad was something else. Now, again, <laughs> if all the white people are racist, but Joey's dad sticks out among the racists, don't you tell me anything about him being borderline, psychotic, schizophrenic, racist. That is all. Let's see. He said we could always tell when his old man had worked him over. Even that one sexually worked him over? Violently? I think they mean violently, but I mean, hey. Why was he wetting the bed again? We were thinking about that. We could and so you was in the Boy Scouts, the diocese, and his dad. So it's three different environments. Known for I can't say the dad, but his dad was at least verbally physically abusive could have been sexually abusive as well the diocese boy scouts cub scouts to other environments where he could have been sexually abused not that he was just saying why is a grown person wetting the bed again what's all what's up with all this i'm not gay i don't like it people impugning my manhood he continues uh we could always tell when his old man had worked him over because the next day he didn't say much was very quiet to himself kind of closed in he'd have a big shiner and we'd ask what happened to you he said oh i got in a fight with a bunch of niggers or something like that that's what he would tell everybody and it wasn't that because joe had black friends now again we get confused by that and thinking oh he's got he's my friend he can't be racist he hangs out with us wrong two is that stink? Because it seems we've heard that like a billion times throughout this book. Something happens, blame a nigger. I lost my gun, blame a nigger. I lost my job, blame a nigger. Dad abused me, blame a nigger. Or niggers. Lots of, I guess, racist code <laughs> we're getting throughout this book. Anything happens, 1 800, blame a nigger. White person violates a black person, even kills them. Yeah, not supposed to testify on that. No snitching. Lots of racist code throughout the book. Uh, let's see. He never stood up to his dad, never said a bad word about him. Either his dad would call him names right in front of us. Tell Joey he was like a queer. Wow. Now that I mean, whew, all kinds of. Uh, abuse totally incorrect wow what kind of dad are you were you abused I mean because I mean that is a striking statement to be saying to your child under any circumstances much less publicly again was Nicholas abused they say it it repeats so I mean wow what wow in no way does that oh I forgive him it's all right that he killed all those niggers <laughs> no just pointing out all of the psychosis operating here. Dr. Bobby E. Dr. Bobby E. Wright, psychopathic racial personality and other essays right on display in this book. Surprised he didn't mention that case in his book. Maybe he did. And I missed it. Go back and look again. See. Uh, the cabin seemed to be the place where Joe could escape 
the tensions of the city in his home. As Scott recalled, Joey told us about his sister dating a black guy, and he wasn't too happy about that. Actually, it was the dad that was unhappy. His dad found out about it. That might have been what one of the fights was about when we were over the house once, but it was hard to remember exactly because there was always something. I don't ever remember Joey seeing anything else about blacks other than that the whole thing over his sister. Joey was the only son his dad expected him to do something about it. Wow. Now we've heard this so many times. Racist code. The, again, racist code. White women especially. You're not supposed to be fooling around with these nigger males. Like, what in the world? Disgrace the whole family. I should go kill him. Joey, you should go. Now again, hearing stories like this and then all of the victims are black males. Let's see. Oh my God, Marilyn Chamber, what'd she say? We used to have this little dog that barked like mad. Absolute mad. Absolute racism. Anyway, a dog barked like mad whenever a black person walked by our house. I don't know why, because we always had black kids around, but he'd bark and chase them away. It was embarrassing. Once when Joe was over, I said, I don't know what's wrong with this dog that doesn't like black people. Joe said, my father's like him. I told him, Joe, don't talk about your father like that. And he said, I'm not kidding. Believe people when they are telling you things. White dog. Uh, 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 oh, my God. So you got all these folks lined up. Said, Oh, no, no, no. Joe didn't do it. Joe didn't do it. He wasn't a racist. Joe didn't do it. He was a great guy. He was a great guy. They said, oh, oh, man, at first, I didn't believe any of it. After a while, I thought, okay, the shootings with the 22, that could be true. I knew Joey could shoot. And it was this neighborhood. And I knew he was upset about that stuff that had gone on with his sister and his dad, nigger males. Not that it made any sense for him to go out shooting people, but I guess that he just flipped out. Now, again, I don't know what that means. Flipped out? What? <laughs> what? any of it like well okay I could see yeah and it's again the first person he shot is a 14 year old black child like what what well it is the neighborhood and yeah he did shoot and he was upset of him yeah okay I could see yeah I guess he could have got upset and <laughs> Uh, let's see. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Is there anything else? Jeez, took lots of notes. Um, the papers kept saying that Joe was a racist and that's why he killed people. I have not really read any newspaper articles saying that he was a racist. <laughs> like, I have to go back and look, but I haven't seen one, and that is so important because that is also racist code so frequently white people flip out talk about flip out flip out and begin accusing people falsely of you called me a racist you called me a racist everybody saying I'm a racist everybody saying I'm a racist I don't have to go back and look again I don't remember there being a whole lot of reports saying Joseph Christopher is a racist even then that is I mean hey like whoa we do not just go throwing that term around especially libeling a white person as a racist I'm going to have to go and look while the second audio clip plays. Um, the thing about the black guy stealing the gun, again, I don't think there were, you know, tons of stories. Saying, oh, yeah, he was a racist. That is mentioned him blaming a black utility worker for stealing his gun. 
but even that's included as not being true. So just we're back at what I just said, 1-800-BLAME-A-NIGGER, which even that stands out as peculiar. Like, does anybody else do that? I lost my keys, dirty cracker. Oh, I found it behind the sofa. Cracker probably did that too. Dang, really? Does anybody else do that? Like, I'm not talking about, you know, legitimate racism things that white people did do, but just anything that's bad that happens in your day, blame a negra. Even sometimes when you know they didn't do it. That Does anybody else do that? Let's see. I think I can pause. Oh, 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 oh. uh, I did have other notes. I'll pause there. Yeah, I'll pause there. Let's see. Make sure. Miss any folks with hands? Yes, didn't miss any folks uh, with hands up. So if you have commentary, write down your notes. We'll get your commentary uh, for the second portion or after the second portion of the reading. Uh, so we will get back to it. Still in chapter 18, uh, Catherine Pellinero, white woman, absolute madness. Audio segment number two, Catherine Massey Book Club. Dr. John Bear Train was a Manhattan psychiatrist, a diplomat of the American Boards of Psychiatry and Neurology. He met with Joseph for five hours in December and again in January 1983, at the Supreme Court Psychiatric Clinic. Dr. Train reviewed the voluminous file. In preparing his own report, Dr. Train noted that Joseph's background was well documented elsewhere and need not be repeated, except for two points. He was raised by a domineering, authoritative father, who had a repressive influence on the defendant, and, after the father died, he became socially withdrawn and broke his relationship with his girlfriend. He appeared to pathologically mourn for his father, making daily visits to the grave. Dr. Train asked Joseph pointed questions about the crimes and pending trial and recorded his answers. Joseph acknowledged that he had considered making a plea of not guilty because of insanity at the time, being disturbed. He said he knew the purpose of this examination— to give your opinion as to my mental condition in 1980 when these things occurred, because at the time it happened, I was not in my control. Difficult things I heard and saw, listening to TV and radio and thinking they were talking to me, what the announcers say. When asked if he would testify, Joe became confused. To say what? Seeing what I've seen, it would be better for me to really not say. He shook his head perplexed. I don't think it would be. If I say something, they are going to try to... I've seen lawyers, and they try to twist. Asked why he did not attempt an insanity defense in Buffalo, Joseph said because he didn't trust anyone and made an irrelevant reference to not wanting a TV in his cell. He would give no reason for his adamant stand about refusing a jury trial. Dr. Train discussed this with him at length. Joe insisted he must have non-jury trials and would not consider an opposing opinion on this point from his attorney. As to the offenses, Joseph said, I know I shot a guy in the head, and thinking before I pulled the trigger you have nothing to lose, like do or die. 
That is what I was feeling, and I can't explain it. I thought people... Pause. Things happening to me. Pause. Like I was walking and this black guy hit me in the stomach, and he said after work to come to this place. A few weeks later, I heard the black man who I worked with said crazy shit to me. Pause. I didn't understand what he said. Also on radio and TV, the announcers say things. Like what? The doctor asked. I don't remember. Things you see. No specific thing. It was a collection. I remember one thing when I saw the black guy. I saw a dead animal. At that point in time, Joseph said he felt something was wrong and went to a psychiatric clinic where he was told nothing was wrong with me and he was sent home. He said that before enlisting in the army, all kinds of things broke loose. I started shooting people. Asked why, he paused and said, a combination of things I heard and seen telling me to do these things. Why? Dr. Train asked. I don't know. Why only blacks? I don't know. He made a gesture of futility and became confused. I can't explain. Like I said, I thought do or die. Were you told to shoot or kill? Not in those words. It is what I concluded from what I believed was happening. If not told to, why do it? It all meant do it or die. The kids on the street used to say, there is my friend Joe. He vaguely tried to explain that his masculinity was in doubt if he did not do such things as drink at a bar. If you can't do this or that, he paused. You aren't a man. If not a man, a child? He explained, these people were closing in on me. I heard different things like people in a restaurant. I heard them talk under their breath, like talking to me. Saying what? I don't remember. He made an exasperated gesture of perplexity. He heard things to come to New York and stick people. He related the same details as he had to Dr. Ting, but he was now clear that this had happened while he was on Christmas leave from the army. He didn't know how many people he stabbed in the chest. During this period, he walked the streets, singing Silent Night and visiting churches to pray and be warm. He mentioned a list of the churches he visited. He returned to Fort Benning where he stabbed a black soldier. He refused to eat in the stockade and later cut his penis. Of the self-mutilation, Dr. Train wrote, he can't or won't explain this bizarre action. Again, he believes he was drugged and because of it, spontaneously and voluntarily confessed to the murders. Dr. Train noted that Joe now believed his food was drugged at Rikers, and he had given his attorney a plastic bag with food in it to be analyzed. He receives no medication and indicated he would refuse it if he were prescribed, Dr. Train wrote. He would frequently make a gesture of exasperated futility when he could not explain his behavior or lose his trend of thought. He was ill at ease and guarded. His speech was frequently rambling and irrelevant with inappropriate pauses in the middle of and between sentences as he had difficulty in expressing himself. His mood and affect were inappropriate. 
smiling, and intransigence. It appeared necessary that he be in control of the situation and avoid being influenced. As a result, he assumed a posture of resistance in a power struggle to protect his autonomy. There was a severe thought disorder with loose associations, tangential thinking, blocking, and loss of goal idea. As a result, he frequently surrendered to perplexity with a gesture of futility in trying to express himself when he couldn't maintain a trend of thought. When asked why he insisted on a non-jury trial, he irrelevantly stated, From what I understand as to what happened to me seems like bullshit, like you go for a walk and go into a restaurant and hear people talk and think they are talking about me. What has this to do with your decision to have a non-jury trial? None. I don't know why I said it. When asked about his vague reference to masculinity, he stated, If you didn't do this or that, you weren't a man. Explain. An older person doesn't manipulate children with their hands. They just... I don't know how to explain it. Dr. Train gave further examples of what he termed a severe thinking disorder with loss of goal idea. He asked Joe if the offenses were wrong. I don't know, he answered. Pause. I feel... Pause. This is what I got to do or die. Is it against the law? I had no reason for the law. I never did anything with the law. I played with kids. I had no reason to steal. I had no need for money, a couple of dollars a week. I ate good, worked hard, and stayed in the country when I wanted to. What are you trying to say? the doctor asked. I don't know. What was the question? I don't know. Wasn't it if your acts were against the law? Was Vietnam? World War II? World War I against the law? Joseph answered. It is what I felt. It was what I had to do. Joseph made vague references to delusions of influence, but couldn't explain other than to say he heard people talk over TV, radio, and in bars. He denied auditory hallucinations and denied motivation by a mission to get rid of evil or black people. All he could say was that in some nebulous way, his victims were his enemies, and that from what he heard and the way people acted, he inferred that he was to join the army and kill. He was unable to say why other than things you hear. He refused to discuss the self-mutilation of his penis other than to make a vague reference to something he heard someone say, not in relation to him, something he heard when he was young. Dr. Train wrote, he has only superficial insight in that he believes he was not mentally normal at the time of the offenses and was not in his control. After conviction and imprisonment, he began to believe he wasn't responsible and asked to be returned to Mid-Hudson to speak to Dr. Chalapa. He knew the nature of the weapons and that he used them to kill. He stated that he ran from the offenses to get out of the immediate area. When asked why, he stated, Ever see a nature animal program on TV? You see a bear kill an animal, instinctively run away, and then come back. He believes that by having a no-jury trial, Jesus Christ will convince the judge to free him.
Dr. Train gave a diagnosis of schizophrenia, paranoid type, chronic. He concluded, This man is suffering from schizophrenia, a psychosis with a severe thinking disorder which renders him incapable of conferring rationally without loose associations, tangentiality, blocking, and loss of goal ideas. Although guarded and self-serving, the presence of this thinking disorder rules out malingering. Although he has a sophisticated understanding of legal procedures, the thinking disorder impairs his ability to relate, recall, and appreciate his condition. It makes him unable to confer meaningfully with his attorney. He overcompensates for his faulty self-image by a need to maintain his integrity of self through an exaggerated insistence on his own autonomy to make decisions and be in full control of his situation. At present, he does, as a result of mental disease, lack the capacity to assist in his defense. Killed 13, Christopher says, was ordered to commit 22 caliber murders. The headline appeared in the Buffalo News on Sunday, September 18, 1983. It was the first installment of a two-part interview, the second half of which ran in the following day's newspaper. An announcement had appeared in the paper on Friday. As the third anniversary of the nightmare that became known as the 22 caliber killings nears, convicted murderer Joseph G. Christopher has decided to speak out. During an interview at Rikers Island with Gene Warner, Christopher tried to explain the mysterious forces that led him to kill. Gene Warner was a reporter for the news. Warner had spent three years as a teacher at Kensington High School on Buffalo's east side before turning to the newspaper business. He had joined the staff of the Buffalo News in June 1980, three months before the killings had begun, mainly covering the weekend police beat. In 1983, Warner was not yet one of the paper's star crime reporters. He had landed this plum assignment when editors at the News had asked him to check into the authenticity of two strange, rambling letter essays they'd received from Joseph Christopher, with a request that the newspaper print them. They asked Warner to find out if Christopher had actually written the letters. The reporter verified with Rikers Island that the letters had indeed come from Joseph Christopher. Warner then wrote to Christopher and asked for an interview. Christopher agreed. Warner went to New York City. For three hours, he and Christopher sat alone in a visiting room at Rikers with a guard standing outside the door. It was like talking to a picture on the wall, Gene Warner recalled years later. His affect was very flat. His answers were cold, staccato, unemotional, like he was talking about someone else, not himself. Impersonal to the nth degree. He didn't have much interest in one point over another. He seemed soulless. Warner likened it to a dragnet interview, but without the wisecracks at the end. Referring to the TV show known for the clipped monotone, just the facts dialogue of its principal characters, Christopher would not engage in small talk or pleasantries. He didn't smile once. After establishing that Warner should call him Joseph and not Joe, the subject spoke of the conspiracy. I was ordered to kill. 
Warner naturally asked by whom. Christopher tried to explain that there had been a conspiracy consisting of two separate groups that had conspired against him as a test of his strength. Do you believe that what you see in a courtroom is a trial? It's a dramatization, Christopher said. Where's a need for a trial when the people conspire? They ordered me to do this, the ability to kill, as a test of me. They knew whether I had done it or I hadn't done it, so they were questioning my personal stature as a man. I judge myself as far as my stature as a man. He further explained, I wasn't supposed to be able to cope with having to kill someone after I had been degraded for such a long period of time. After I'd been able to do what they said I couldn't do, they put me in a system, prison, and tried to grind me down, but I just got stronger. Warner asked him more about the nature of the conspiracy. I was ordered to kill, Christopher repeated. Who ordered me to kill? Who set up the conspiracy? I don't know. The essays he'd written to the newspaper contained the statement, So it was a baseball game, seventeen hits and thirteen dead, if they are dead. Asked about this, he explained, I supposedly attacked seventeen people, and thirteen of them are dead. Warner attempted to ask him about specific crimes and victims, but Christopher refused to give him direct answers. I don't believe that discussing each individual incident would serve any purpose. He rebuffed several questions as being sensational and kept repeating, Again, I was ordered to kill. That's all I'm going to say. He did, however, pointedly deny the thwarted knife attack on Calvin Crippen that had occurred on New Year's Day, 1981. That's a degradation against Calvin Crippen, he told Warner. I don't want to degradate him. I ask you not to put that in. He didn't deny the New Year's Eve stabbing of Albert Menifee. When Warner asked if he had tried to kill him, Christopher replied, That was my objective. Christopher also claimed that Glenn Dunn had not been his first victim. A day or two prior to the shooting of Dunn, he said, he had attacked someone else. It was downtown, and I put a knife in somebody's throat. I don't believe he was hurt badly. He didn't know for sure, because there was never anything in the news about it. Warner asked him about the killings of cab drivers Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones. Christopher replied, I'm not denying anything. I don't want sensationalism. That struck Warner as odd, since he had denied the attack on Calvin Crippen, a crime for which he'd actually been charged. Then again, the entire interview was bizarre. Christopher went off on tangents in which he made oblique references to things like the movie A Clockwork Orange and a story about a boxer that his seventh-grade class had been reading when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated all of which he seemed to connect to the conspiracy against him. Gene Warner recalled, I began to wonder why he had me come down. Often when people want to be interviewed, there's a basic point they want to make. With him, there didn't seem to be any purpose, nor even any interest in what I was going to write. Warner had not known what to expect of Joseph Christopher, either in terms of the content of the interview or of the man himself, 
As for Warner's impression of Christopher, he looked like the kid who sat in the back of the class, a little weasel who nobody liked, an unremarkable physical specimen. He looked very young. I remember thinking he would have gotten eaten up at Kensington High School, which is close to Brigard High School, where he went. I guessed he had probably gotten beaten up and picked on. He had developed a bit of a tough shell, and I felt like he was trying to act like a tough guy, someone who could hack it in prison, but it just made him this unemotional, unappealing, unlikable character. His inner demons and lack of self-confidence were obvious. They broke for lunch. Warner tried to gather his thoughts and come up with a way to salvage what seemed like a pointless and unproductive interview. He was at a loss at how to ask Christopher questions that might produce a worthwhile answer. Despite how things were going, the reporter didn't get the feeling that Christopher was lying or toying with him. I didn't sense a hidden agenda. He didn't care about the interview, but he was trying to be honest. I'd ask a question, and it was like his mind would try to go there, but then he'd hit a brick wall. Overall, I got the feeling that this was a guy who was just trying to survive from one moment to the next. What Warner had really hoped to get from him was information about the cab drivers. Had he killed them or not? That seemed to be the question on most people's minds in Buffalo. Warner tried again, but no matter how he broached the subject or rephrased the question, Christopher just gave him the same pre-programmed answer, saying he wasn't denying anything. He didn't want sensationalism, whatever that meant. Christopher kept insisting he was a soldier, one tin soldier, you know, who'd been drafted and ordered to kill. He said he did not hate black people. To hate is to lie. I deal with people for themselves and that all his victims were dark-skinned because that was the directive. His response to Mark Mahoney's courtroom claim that he was psychotic. A psychotic act is sometimes an aggravated rational act, he explained. If you take an animal and put him in a cage, and you keep sticking him and sticking him, and if you take him out of the cage and he bites you, that animal is considered psychotic. That, in a way, is what they did to me. Christopher wouldn't discuss his father, beyond saying that he had taught him a lot. Warner was curious. The relationship with his father had been cited by psychiatrists, and Christopher had also mentioned him in the essays he'd sent to the Buffalo News. My father told me a long time ago what they were going to do to me, Christopher had written, except I had no idea what his stories meant so I have the voice in my head. I remember all the stories. The only reverence he made to his father, in answer to a question about whether, in view of his long prison sentence, he had considered suicide, was, The only movie I ever went to see with my father was M.A.S.H. The opening song was, Suicide is Painless. It brings on many changes. I would never try to kill myself. You don't die. They just change you. He told Gene Warner that he would walk free as soon as his army enlistment was up. As far as I'm concerned, as of the 3rd of November, I think that is the date, my three-year contract with the army is up. They don't have any rightful cause to hold me because I didn't do anything that I wasn't ordered to do.
The competency matter dragged on in Manhattan courtrooms. Dr. John Train had deemed Christopher incompetent, while the staff at Bellevue, to which Joseph had been committed once again in the summer of 1983, continued to insist they saw no signs of mental illness in him. More exams with more doctors would be scheduled. A competency hearing would be held. Frank Bress would persevere until he was removed from the case. Decades afterward, Bress said, I've never understood the resistance most prosecutors and judges have to a defense of mental disease or defect. I don't know if they're afraid that all defendants are going to try to use it or what, but there's such a small percentage of cases where there's a viable psychiatric defense, less than 1% of criminal cases in which it's applicable. Christopher was in the less than 1%. Bress was already well acquainted with Bellevue's director, social worker Hillel Bodek, who was regularly called in by prosecutors. I had recognized the sensitivity of dealing with Christopher from the start, that I had to be careful about not letting on to him that I felt he was mentally ill. Judge Altman was sensitive to this as well. I was afraid Christopher would shut down on me completely if he knew I had a hand in requesting psychiatric exams. He'd refuse to work with me and ask for a new attorney. And that's exactly what happened. Bodek told him it was me who was pushing for a competency hearing. By this time, the case had been assigned to another judge, George Bundy Smith. Christopher went into court and started ranting again about a conspiracy against him that I was a part of. The judge removed me, thinking the problem was that Christopher just didn't like me, and that if he had another defense attorney, things would be fine. I was replaced by another public defender assigned by the court. Frank Bress became a defense witness at the competency hearing, as did Mark Mahoney. Ultimately, Christopher was deemed competent to stand trial. In the late summer of 1983, from his cell at Rikers Island, Joe wrote a letter to his former girlfriend, Donna. Most of the strange three-page letter seemed to be about his life at the jail and made little sense. Toward the end, he asked Donna if she could come visit him at Rikers. If not, he wanted her to send him a picture from a trip they had taken to the Adirondacks, a photo of her near the Ossible River. He also asked her to send him the book The Boys from Brazil, because he wanted to know what they say I am. The Manhattan trial was delayed several times as Joseph bounced in and out of jails and psychiatric hospitals, where authorities at Rikers and Auburn would send him when his mental condition rendered him unmanageable as an ordinary, or even slightly unordinary, prisoner. He had periods of catatonia and anorexia. Other times he would pace in his cell all night long, he often smiled bizarrely and laughed to himself in his cell. He stuffed cotton in his ears and covered his face with a towel, and he usually wouldn't talk, except when he was alone in his cell. He wrote to Donna again in the spring of 1984, this time from the Long Island Correctional Facility in West Brentwood, New York. The first two and a half pages were neatly handwritten stanzas from Wallace Stevens' poem, Esthétique du mal, aesthetics of evil, followed by a personal observation. 
I sit and look out. Today my cell is on the seventh floor. Since interviewing the reporter, likely a reference to his September 1983 interview with Buffalo News reporter Gene Warner, they have been shipping me from place to place around the state. I think my cell count is 26. This particular cell has nothing in it. The mattress is on the floor cause the cot springs are shot. They let you in the day room for an hour a day. The parade of lakes continue. I think they want to bite me on the neck. I got a great neck. Please confuse what may be with what you know. Donna couldn't understand. The same thought rolled over and over in her mind. What happened to him? What happened to him? On July 5th, 1985, Joe's Buffalo convictions were overturned by New York's highest court, the State Court of Appeals, which ruled 4-2 that Judge William Flynn had erred in rejecting the request of Christopher's defense attorneys to present new expert testimony on his fitness to stand trial. This reversed a 1984 lower court ruling that had upheld the convictions. Mark Mahoney had ultimately been proven correct when he cautioned Judge Flynn in 1982 that his decision constituted reversible error. Joseph still had not yet stood trial in Manhattan. At the time his Buffalo convictions were overturned, he was in the Central New York Psychiatric Center at Marcy, New York, where he would remain until September 4th. While at Auburn Prison, his mental state had deteriorated to the point where he was completely non-responsive, lying on the floor of the cell wrapped tightly in a blanket. He did not eat, bathe, or come out for recreational activities he had formerly engaged in. He did not move at all. On May 16th, the prison transferred him to the psychiatric center at Downstate Correctional, where he was diagnosed as schizophrenic, catatonic type. In a certification for commitment dated May 20, 1985, the examining doctor wrote, History of suicide attempts and treatment at Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center. He is mentally ill and dangerous to himself. He was committed by court order and delivered to Central New York Psychiatric Center on May 25th. The catatonia alternated with euphoria. He would laugh, act silly, and run high fevers. By mid-July, he was protesting his commitment. In August, the staff at Central New York Psych Center began seeing a significant change in Joseph Christopher. The constant suspicion, the seclusive behavior, the wild laughing and pacing, all had subsided. He stopped flushing all his food down the toilet. He became more alert, responsive, rational. He began to resemble the gentle and considerate individual his friends and family had described. He even resumed contact with his mother, whom he had refused to see for two years. For the first time ever, he was improving. For the first time ever, he was being given antipsychotic medication. Finally, he was ready to stand trial. On October 23, 1985, a Manhattan jury convicted Christopher of the murder of Luis Rodriguez and the stabbing of survivor Ivan Fraser. The prosecution argued that Christopher had bragged while in the army about killing blacks 
Defense attorney Richard Syracuse argued that Christopher should be acquitted because he is not a well person. His vision of reality has nothing to do with ours. In handing down the maximum sentence of 33 years in prison, Judge John A.K. Bradley said, There is no doubt that the defendant is mentally ill. It is obvious he's a menace to society. On February 21, 1986, Joseph was transferred to the Erie County Holding Center in Buffalo to await retrial for the murders of Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas. All righty. That is the end of Chapter 18. We will wrap this here book up next week. All done. Uh, cannot believe it. Uh, this has been a little bit longer, but in some sense, it's... I don't know. We will be done next week, though. It'll be a full session. We'll have two audio segments. It'll be uh, about perfect, because it'll be about the exact amount of time that we would normally do. So, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. <clears throat> Folks can be thinking, what did we learn? Was this worth the time and energy? Hey, even what's our theory on why we don't know this? People who were alive at this time and or people who have connections to the New York area or just, you know, pay attention to crimes, you know, serial killers and all the rest of it. Why are we not informed about this racism, white supremacy, collective trauma, collective trauma induced amnesia, full phrasing. What's the explanation? Connections to the current tra uh, current Peyton Gendron terrorist activities, all of that mental health. How is that going to factor into the current trial? We'll think of everything to wrap up. I guess we can share some of that this week if you like, but we'll wrap up next week. One and done. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email again, untiljustice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com alrighty let's see other emails for this week different investor wrote in uh, black male uh, greetings Gus I would recommend listeners look up Colin Ferguson the Long Island Railroad commuter train shooter 19 93 black male mass murderer killed six wounded 19 described as a racially motivated attack sentenced to 315 years eligible for parole in 2309 <laughs> interesting comparison with Christopher no sympathy for Colin or his family as far as I can tell we talked about that case uh, tangentially in the book club previously during the OJ Simpson trial because that trial was happening at the same time as the O.J. Simpson uh, case. They even had some jokes uh, between the two. Anyway, chapter 18, uh, Guy de Maupassant. Oh, I think it's Guy, Guy de Maupassant, the Orla, 
a French novel written in 1887 about a supernatural being, the Orla, that takes over the thoughts of a man, turning him insane, eventually causing him to commit suicide. A metaphor for Joey, I suppose. Lots of those. Poor Joey. Number two, staff psychiatrist at Auburn. Although possibly not acutely psychotic at present, he is a person who is very fragile and could decompensate very quickly. When he does decompensate, he will be a suicidal risk. Joey is fragile, vulnerable, worthy of empathy. Aren't all white people? Number three, Christopher had refused to leave Rikers, but guards told him one way or another he was going. Christopher had been assailed by garbage and excrement thrown by inmates. Guards and officers had formed a circle around Christopher to shield him from further assault. Wow, I'm pretty certain I worked on Rikers Island when Christopher was there. That's amazing, really? Hmm small world i don't know what to say that's crazy and you didn't know about this that's even cra- now that's what i mean like that is amazing like you worked at rikers island while he was there and didn't know about this case Woo! that is why that would have been the whole gossip like talk about what do we talk water cooler like man they got this adolf hitler racist who's going around killing black people and oh they were throwing you know urine bottles on oh it was the grossest thing i mean oh my god that is crazy anyway let's see what it says so i worked there i'm pretty certain i worked on rikers island when christopher was there one thing i remember from orientation is that you did not refer to people who were in control of the detainees as guards instead you were instructed to call them by their name correctional officer officer co or officer boop co boop never guard unlike upstate new york prisons many if not most co's were black or non-white when i was working there so it is likely that at least some of the officers circling christopher were black one of the many ironies of the system of racism white supremacy oh uh, 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 terrible day on the job all the way around for we felt bad for the Christophers. Cheryl Smith recalled, are there any suspected racists in the book who do not feel bad for the Christophers? I don't know. It seems like even some of the black people's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Woo. Number five. My uncle Laverne was very, was a very prejudiced person. See, he didn't say anything about uncle Laverne. See, that was just me and Barry and mom being goofy i guess he constantly ranted about blacks but he didn't say blacks he hated them and he was very vocal about it the family of laverne becker confirmed we read all that took down the basketball hoops just your average white american community that's what i said that's what you would conclude from reading this white people are racist all of them just matter of degrees if that means anything to you number six speaking of nicholas he was the most racist guy i ever met in my life that's his dad black person walks by i'm taking shots at him joey's dad was something else um let's see the psychopathic oh did I... i said that already psychopathic racial personality and other essays dr bobby e wright the great number seven we used to have this little dog that barked white dog a black person walked by the house um research research suggests that dogs mimic the unspoken emotions energy and behaviors of their owners moreover see the cows book club selection white dog and the subsequent program that we had in the middle of all that like 
absolutely amazing. Number eight, Burgard was rough, but I don't remember Joey getting bullied any worse than anyone else. He never got beat up that I know of. I'm sure he would have said something because he knew damn well that the four of us and the other three of us would have done something. <laughs> An example of the Voltron effect for sure. Army. Number nine, Dr. Ting concluded that Joseph had schizoid personality disorder that did not interfere with his ability to cooperate with his lawyer or assist in his own defense. He declared him at present competent to stand trial. He was sent back to Rikers Island. I wonder if Dr. Ting was Asian, non-white. If he was, then maybe both non-white psychiatrists found Christopher competent. Now that would be interesting. Mm. Number 10, Bellevue submitted their report lonely and depressed individual although competent and not presently psychotic the patient suffers from significant chronic mental illness fragile emotionally becomes active become actively suicidal mentally ill and could have another psychotic breakdown under stress joey is fragile vulnerable worthy of empathy uh, 11 send him the book the boys from brazil because he wanted to know what they say i am now, I did the same thing he did. I said, what? What is this book? I've never heard of this. The Boys from Brazil. So let's pause. What is this here book about? We'll even take the cheap one, Wikipedia. Uh, Jacob Lieberman is a Nazi hunter loosely based on Simon Weisenhall, who runs a center in Vienna that documents crimes against humanity perpetrated during the Holocaust. The waning interest of the Western nations is tracking down Nazi criminals and the failure of the bank where he kept his center's funds has forced him to move the center to his own lodgings. Then in September 1974, Lieberman receives a phone call from a young man in Brazil who claims he has just finished tape recording a meeting held by so-called angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mingle, who was still alive at the time, a concentration camp medical doctor who performed horrific experiments on camp victims during World War II. According to the young man, Mingala is activating the Odessa for a strange assignment, sending out six Nazis, former SS officers, to kill 94 men living in Western Europe and North America who share a few common traits. All men are civil servants and all of them have to be killed on or about particular dates spread over several years. All will be 65 years old at the time of their killing before the young man can finish their conversation. He is killed. That's the boys in Brazil released in 1978 and it was made into a movie so I guess you could be cheap and watch the movie on this one if you are so in Gregory Peck is in it are you serious freaking Superman that's crazy <laughs> My God. and uh, gentlemen's agreement like wow that's uh, eh, I guess if you got some free time boys from Brazil read the book see the film Nazi Dr. Welsing might have been interested uh, let's see if folks have uh, commentary. We'll get to the folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, Non-Clemson grad and or uh, maybe resting Miss C. And then Irie in Louisiana. You all should be with us. Feel free. And uh, Bay Area mom as well. Hello. Can I be here? Yes, sir. Um, you can go. Um, you can go first. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, I didn't catch the first segment except for maybe like 10 minutes or so. But what I just heard, um, I want to say it sounds like he learned or was instructed to play crazy. And when they talked about, when she talked about him improving and everything, like, yeah, I suppose he did improve. Like, he's been put into a mental institution, you know, instead of general population of a prison where he should be and have to, you know, fend for himself and his safety uh, like everyone else would, um, especially considering what the person mentioned about Colin Ferguson, I believe. You said it was his name. I remember that hearing that name back then. I was in uh, not even in middle school yet, but I remember hearing about that. Um, you know, I'm just really convinced that um, perhaps he, you know, he was attracted to his black men and didn't quite have access to them sexually like he wanted to. So being friends with them and play fighting with them and, you know, being close to them gave him a, a, a violent arousal. But um, what I heard him say on the stand, oh, they told me, they told me. I don't remember. I could be incorrect. I know I wasn't always able to attend during the live uh, sessions, but I, I never heard him mention anything about voices at all. So it's just really convenient that um, all of a sudden that's something he gets to say or he says, um, yeah, that's it. It's just really, my God, white people, they just never cease to name. Okay, thanks. Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana. Non-Clemson grad, thank you for yielding, sir. No, no problem. Uh, I want to take it back to some of the questions you said after um, the second um, recording had played. And to me, it's very interesting because you hear about all the things, you know, the mental issues he apparently had, potentially had, and stuff like that. And every time I hear stuff like that, especially in the context of white people, I can't help but to think to myself, um, a white person could bring themselves to ask for things like having charges dismissed or having their charges acquitted compared to all the black people who have ever been charged with crimes they never committed who would suffer and languish in greater confinement for decades. It's absolutely galling. And, you know, why we don't ever hear so much about these stories? Well, um, obviously, we all get access to the same amount of propagandist news and they simply don't talk about this kind of stuff. It's just that simple. We'll hear about all the things that black people do, have done, most of them probably lies anyways, and that's all we ever hear. And um, juxtaposed to these somewhat passe stories of absolute um, atrocities of multiple people being killed and no one ever being held to account. And it's I'll say it like this. Uh, recently, my wife and I, we watched a series on Amazon called Them. And we were trying to decide who the audience was for that particular show. It was a, a piece, a horror piece, that um, with a bit of supernatural stuff to it. Um, set back in like the 1950s, the black family moving into a white suburban neighborhood. And of course, the terrorism that they 
um, had to survive that basically drove them crazy, so much so that they were starting to see ghosts and all this stuff. And it's, at least in my opinion, it's very reasonable to see how black people can be driven crazy even to do things they would not normally do depending on the circumstances and the white people that terrorize them. But so many times that, um, like in this um, particular story that has been brought up, Mr. Um, Gingren, he, he loses his gun, he blames a black person. Um, something happens to him when he gets into a fight, he blames a black person. Things, he, things that have nothing to do with black people, he blames black people, and that gets used as an excuse for whatever insane um, um, symptoms or behaviors that he engages in. And then, of course, we now pass, you know, obviously, this is almost 40 years ago now. And um, I, I, I grew up in New York City myself. I'd never heard of this kind of thing. The only thing I remember hearing when I was a kid was O.J. Simpson in the Central Park Five. The idea that um, to hear stories about things that white people did, those things were so fleeting that I can't tell you that I remember any of them, especially while I was growing up. I can't tell you. I think maybe the only thing I can remember growing up was maybe the um, Oklahoma uh, City, um, the Oklahoma bomber from Oklahoma, back in like whenever that happened. I just don't remember a lot of things having to do with white people doing a whole a bunch of horrible things, even though we clearly know through history, there's plenty of examples of them doing that. And with that, I'll mute my line. Amazing. And <laughs> the Oklahoma City bombing, bombing a much obliged non-Clemson grad, that happened during the O.J. Simpson trial. So it's, you know, kind of a wonder that we even know about that. I remember we talked about that while reading on the O.J. Simpson in the book club. Like that was the only news item that briefly nudged O.J. Simpson off of the front page of every newspaper in this part of the world and even some around the globe but that was just for a few days in 1995 and then after that it was back to that negro but we had lots of folks that callers or listeners said he worked at Rikers Island while Joey was there and never heard of this case either racism white supremacy uh, let's see. Bay Area Mom, did you have any other commentary that you wanted to get in or just listening? Um, yes, I noticed um, how the, even the judge, when it was when it came time to um, even just uh, testing him for uh, giving him his meal evaluations, he's throwing it back saying, no. These overcrowded jails, you just rush through this so you know all this stuff that goes on with other nationalities that um, endure the court system. But when it comes to him, you want to exercise it with everyone else. You don't exercise it. I, that just kind of stood out to me. So that that's what I wanted to um, state. Absolutely. Much obliged Bay Area mom. I made sure to post. We were supposed to read all God's children earlier this year in our South Carolina non-Clemson grad. We we're going to do our South Carolina. Wow. While we were reading uh, SMA Washington Williams, then the shooting happened. Willie Bosket, New York. 
at 15, he didn't even kill 50, 40 people or carve anybody's hearts out. At 15, they changed the laws so that he can be prosecuted as an adult. They didn't have, oh, whoa, 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 his brain is still developing and, you know, he's 15. We are not going to allow these Negro children to be the ruination of society. And in fact, the article that I posted, Willie Boskett, 15, he gets locked up. South Carolina, that's what the book is about. All God's children, Willie Boskett is the product of Pitchfork Ben Tillman. J. Strom Thurman, white supremacy, racism, monsters and monstrosities, but it wasn't any sympathy for old Willie Boskett was two decades in the box. Solitary confinement, that's what they call it. But yeah, I posted that on social media as we were rolling today. Let me get to my notes to the second portion. And I thought that's a great point about the overcrowded cells. I'll make sure we get that in before we wrap up. Matt Greider and his uh, man, I have such a very much right in line with O.J. Simpson. When we read Jeffrey Tubin's book, I said, Johnny Cochran said, Jeffrey Tubin is a liar. And he said it so forcefully. I was like, wow, I don't even hear. I mean, that's kind of rare, too. People don't just call folks a liar. And he said it repeat and with so much just whoa. Let me make sure that I am not misunderstood. And I said, by the time we got close to the end, I said, oh, I see what he means. Yep. (laughs) Master deceiver. Matt Greider said in May, that's why I said it's hard to believe. Like, dang, we started this book in May. We started this book in May. Matt Greider said in May, Catherine Pellinero is a pretty white woman but she got it wrong. And I didn't understand what he meant at that time. I read his book, but we hadn't read her. I got it now. (laughs) I got it. I got it. He talks about all, I'm going to read some of the portions from his book next week uh, to kind of balance out uh, some of the information, but oh my, like I got it. I got, I don't even know if he said that on the air. That was even like real close to when all this first happened, Peyton Gentry and everything uh, at the shooting this time around. But he said that when I talked to him on the phone to ask him to be a guest, he said, pretty white woman, she got it wrong. I got it now. Sometimes it takes a little time catching up. Okay. Uh, And incidentally, even pause one more time. I did look. Gus T did his homework. This is another one like, ooh, wee, I'd be uppity with Pelinero on the program, ma'am. I don't know. I didn't get to see all the cool info that you have, but I have well over 300 uh, reports just on Joey. That's not even counting the other Buffalo material. I haven't found one article. Joseph Christopher, no count, racist, white supremacist, not one. I read what I told you, though, read what I found before, though, average guy, good guy. It was tons of that. Let me give you another one. What I found, I didn't find racist friends worried. What I found suspects friends worried. I got that one. Courier Express Friday, May 1981. I got that. And they got a picture of his mom at the top soldier holding her hand. I got that one. Nowhere in there is joseph christopher racist out nope 
Let me continue. So the next page, let's see what it says. It says, suspects, friends, doubt charges. It doesn't say racist. Let me read what it says. Let's see. During the early part of this period, Christopher spent much of his time at Canisius serving as an assistant instructor with the Bisonette Club, which at that time used the Canisius shooting range while earning credit toward his NRA certification. One of the things that impressed me about him then is that he was not materialistic, said the young woman, a Bisonette Club instructor, when she met Christopher socially in the late 1970s. I think that's Donna. Where does it say he's a racist? I've seen all the composite drawings of suspects and I'll tell you, he doesn't resemble them in the least. Where does it say he's a racist? I'm just looking through the list. I can't, I'm even going to have to go and look at the black press because I got like, Ebony, I told you, the black press, A++. They did a phenomenal job. Tony Brown's Journal, Ebony, Pittsburgh Courier, go on down the list. I wish I had more, a uh, bigger list in front of me uh, so I could give even more, but I mean, it was well covered. Uh, LA Sentinel in California, I keep rolling on them, uh, but it was well, Baltimore uh, Afro-American, it was well covered uh, at that time. So yeah, there's, I don't even, even in those reports, I don't remember them the black press I'm talking about say, oh my God, this racist soldier and no count guy and and I I share I posted. You all can look. Uh, I posted them online. You can look through the things that I posted on social media. Do you see news articles about this case calling him a racist? Especially after he's captured. And I think before. I think then there might have been some that says, oh, yeah, racist killer. But even then, I don't think that was most of them. Crazed, maniac, yes, not racist. Even then, white people are real careful about just throwing that word racism around, especially calling someone a racist. So that Pelinero and the people that she's quoting saying all this is nonsense and the papers, everybody just saying that he's a racist. I'm saying that that is an act of racism. Wait, call. Put the article. You got you got the articles. I got the articles. And all these reports can be easily accessed for free. So put the paper down. Let's see it. Headline in the report where someone was calling him a racist. Notes. Um, Yeah, all this about rejecting because the facility is overcrowded with black males, probably. Is that the same sort of sympathy and concern as Bay Area mom was saying that black defendants are afforded? Anthony Broadwater. Let's see. He's having his uh, discussion with Dr. Train. He says, uh, I know I shot a guy in the head and think it before I pull the trigger. You've nothing to lose, like do or die. This is what I was feeling and I can't explain it. I thought people, pause, things happened to me, pause. Like I was walking and this black guy hit me in the stomach and he said after work to come to this place. A few weeks later, I hear the black man who I work with said crazy shit to me. 
pause. I didn't understand what he said. <laughs> now you could say, hey, he's a loon. He's crackpot. He's crazy. Even the craziness is consistent. Blame black people. A black guy came and punched me in the stomach. Really? Really? A black guy at work was saying crazy shit. Really? Let's see. Oh, all this talk about me. Even then, some of the, the the consistency about his masculinity said it all meant do or die. The kids on the street used to say, there's my friend Joe. He vaguely tried to explain that his masculinity was in doubt if he did not do such things as drink at a bar. If you can't do this or that, he paused. You aren't a man. If not a man, a child, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. If you're not a man or a woman, child, boy, girl, baby, following lots of Cress Welsing. I can't believe we didn't get to talk to her about this case. This book didn't exist until after she was deceased, but still. Um, great point as well, as well about hearing voices because I don't remember that being reported earlier either. Um, mm, 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 mm. Let's see. This I thought Dr. Welsing in white ball games. The essays he's written to the newspaper contained the statement so it was a baseball game. 17 hits and 13 dead if they are dead asked about this he explained I supposedly attacked 17 people and 13 of them are dead is this a game making a game out of killing black people non-white people that is so in fact they want to talk about World War II lots of that in World War II we've talked about that with Dr. Gerald Horn make a game out of going and collecting body parts of non-white people heard this story before on a mass scale what does it mean to be white alright I got the mail I thought it was important he said the only movie I ever went to with my father was MASH that is making like that's supposed to be a sitcom that's set in the middle of the Vietnam War so called we were talking about Cointelpro and all that. All of that is just global white supremacy racism going to kill non-white people. And we have such a good time doing it. We make one of the greatest television shows ever and use that as the backdrop going to kill gooks and slant eyes. Agent Orange. And then oh, when he said Clockwork Orange, he got then right there. He said he, he wanted to he made He was rambling about Dr. King and Clockwork Orange and they dropped the Agent Orange on them. All right. Let's see. Anything else? this dude is competent we talked about that with Matt Greider uh, you can have mental problems and still be uh, legally competent uh, and he for sure Matt Greider thought that is the case with this fella as do I and I mean hey they come to that <laughs> Willie Bosket, 15 years old two decades in the box we are going to wrap this here up next week we'll start right at chapter 19 and we will hit it and quit it uh, if you have final thoughts questions how important is this book how relevant is this have you seen this talk to now so now we've been talking about this for basically three months by the time we get to next week to finish the book 
Have you heard this mentioned? Should you have heard this mentioned? And, and particularly now, like, oh, man, now we don't just have the tops intersection and all the rest of it and the hunting and all that. But, ooh, the mental health, too. We will put, as they say, a nice bow on it for next week. And we will not be done with Buffalo, like not by a long shot. We invested so much time and, you know, have had so many guests on and such. So, like, this will be our, you know, one of our pet research areas as we continue. And the trial, like, we've got a trial. My goodness. So much to uh, continue to study, to learn. Anywho, we'll wrap up next week neutralizing workplace racism tomorrow much obliged for the folks tuned in hope it was worthy of your time and energy sobriety would be best there are many joseph g christophers on the loose peyton gendron dylan storm roof too many to count white women too in addition to being sober if you're out and about be alert you see someone being hostile and rowdy exit you're in a vehicle you are sober buckled not on your mobile device we need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.